the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to highlights from the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. To hear the full show, download the podcast from iTunes or see 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96FM. 1850-715-996 is the number. The text and WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. At some stage this morning, I will be talking about Eurovision that was supposed to be happening this weekend, but unfortunately isn't. There's a new book out about it. So we can enjoy the book over the weekend and loads of programs that we can kind of be nostalgic about the Eurovision, but it's, uh, it's not happening this weekend, which is a terrible pity because I think it's a year we could have actually gone and won it. We actually could have won it this year. But that comes up later on this morning. Plenty to do with the pandemic, of course, and the important stuff of the day. But sure, we'll have a bit of fun with Eurovision when that comes up too. 1850-715-996, the text or WhatsApp, 083-396-9696. And the email, as I said, opinion at 96fm.ie. We're on Twitter at OpinionLine96. And the Facebook, if you want to contact us, go to the 96FM, Parks 96FM Facebook page. Whack us over a message and mark it for the attention of the Opinion Line. But Lockdown stage one, or release stage one, begins on Monday, assuming, and we, I think, can assume, assuming that the government uh, is told today by uh, Dr. Holohan, you can go ahead, because he wouldn't answer the question last night, but he seems to be indicating that they can go ahead with releasing us, and we'll find that out today. If, according to what we're hearing, we can release released on Monday, then 
garden centres can open, farmers markets can open, hardware stores, homeware stores, some opticians, motorcycle and bike repair shops, car mechanics can go back to work, some phone repair shops can reopen, small construction sites, particularly the small ones, up to 100,000 workers can go back to work from Monday. Tennis courts can reopen, golf courses can reopen, uh, once you can play, uh, keeping your social distance and all that, although I did hear that some people who are presently cocooning are very upset because they can't play tennis and they can't play golf apparently from Monday. Dentists we don't know yet. Dentists are having a meeting with the Minister for Health uh, today in fact and hopefully should have an update from Monday as to when they'll open. And physios chiropractors other practitioners osteopaths pretty much anyone who's not a doctor but operate some kind of a health service acupuncturists we were talking to them uh, last week when can they open we got an email Fergal got an email through to opinion at 96fm.ie to say that uh, this uh, caller's wife got an email from her physio uh, opening next Monday if that's the case why can't the barbers and the dentists open as well it's all close work as well as the physio to be honest I don't mind if everything opens as long as it's a plan to reopen properly and it's all Regulated, But I do think, says this email, some places will open on Monday, regardless of what the government say, which is not what we want anybody to do. Let's talk to the man who's been of unique help to us right throughout this campaign, right throughout this, this crisis, and that is our own Lord Mayor, uh, Dr John Sheehan. John, good morning. Morning, PJ. Um, who can open on Monday, in, in, in your understanding, in medical-wise and, if you like, treatment-wise? Yeah, it's pretty much what you outlined there, uh, PJ. The expectation is that opticians, uh, farmers' markets, garden centres, construction sites, uh, tennis courts, golf courses, um, and will open up. Um, And I think that's needed. I think the data is very encouraging, so I think think this will happen. And I think there's also psychologically a need for, 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 for people to see progress. So... I'd be very optimistic that these things will happen. Um, I think dentists, I will be hopeful that they will be open in some limited way. I know many physios have been working uh, virtually. They have been seeing patients through this with all the proper precautions. And I'd imagine there'll be some more um, easing of some of those uh, restrictions next week as well. I feel really sorry for the hairdressers, I have to say, uh, and barbers, because you know their livelihood has just stopped. Um, I don't know what will happen in this wave, but I would hope that they that they will be opening soon because I think the the data is very very encouraging. You know the the numbers, although each case is very tragic, yeah. the numbers are very very encouraging, and particularly down here in the south, PJ Cork has done really well. And um, you know I was working in the respiratory hub yesterday. It's quiet. It's you know we we're meant to be opening five of them. We've only opened one and reduced hours. All of these things have, are just an indicator that things are going very well. And I suppose the big fear is complacency, that we don't get complacent, Indeed. that the game is over. You that, know? That, that is the worry, isn't it? That we'll, And just personally, the wife has been expressing to me the view that it'll be like a free-for-all one day, that we'll all think, Asher, we're not going to work yet, but sure we can go out and we can play ball and we can do all these things and have parties in the open air because we're out of it now. We're far from it, John. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's kind of that feeling like the the match is over where we're just playing out the clock the last few minutes. And, and that's really not the case. 
And I can understand because there's this pent-up frustration that people have. They want to see their friends, their family members. They want to, you know, catch up with people. They want to have an old chat and a gossip. Um, but the danger is, and we've seen this in other countries, we saw it in some of the states in the US, we've seen it in Germany, it's very easy for the numbers to start creeping up again. And once that happens, then it's very hard to get things back to normal, get things back down again. You know, the genie is out of the bottle. So, you know, we get one shot at this. And that's why, in fairness to the, you know, the, the government and things, they're doing it in a very phased uh, basis. And the reason they're stretching it out is so that we don't have that rebound, so that we don't have this flare-up um, and, and then we're chasing it again. And, and that's why it's been spread out over a number of months. You mentioned that we are doing well in Cork, and it has to be said we are. In fact, it's, we're doing remarkably well. Is there any regional breakdown, John, as to how we're doing in terms of this, it's become part of our vocabulary now, this R number. We know that nationally it's around the 0.5 to 0.7 and it's very stable at that and they're happy that it's there. Do we have any regional breakdown? Like, do we know what it is in Cork? We don't know what the R rate is in Cork, um, but given the fact that our numbers are very low, the R rate by, by extrapolation um, would be lower than the, national, um, than, than, than the national rate. And that's probably due to a number of reasons. We were Probably, uh, this virus probably hit the, the Dublin area first, so we had a bit of warning. We were generally about 10 days to two weeks behind Dublin in terms of those cases. Although, if you remember, PJ, the first real big concern with this was out in CUH, you yeah. know, naturally. The first, community, well. the first community acquired case was Cork, wasn't it? It was, yeah, and Cork responded really, really well, you know, to that. Um, and then I think, you know, in terms of distancing, in terms of obeying the restrictions and things like that, the people of Cork, I have to say, have been magnificent. And, um, you know, I've had people, elderly people who've been cocooned, I've had all the activities that have had to be cancelled, that people have done this for the greater good. So all those sacrifices, and I think that's important to remember, all the sacrifices that people have made, children, adults, elderly people, for the last couple of months, we don't waste all those sacrifices by all this taking over again. So nice, slow, gradual. It isn't back to normal on Monday. Everything isn't back to normal. Don't everybody rush into the garden centre. The garden centre will be there on Tuesday because the fear is if everybody rushes, there'll be a reaction and we'll feel we have to close things down again. Because all it would take, correct me if I'm wrong here, all it would take would be for one person who is asymptomatic, they feel fine, to get into the wrong place with the wrong people and we're in trouble again. Yeah, and then it takes off and you're trying to trace and more people are moving around, so it's harder to trace because everyone has been, you know, not engaging with many people at the moment, but suddenly if we are and then you're trying to chase it, you're back nearly to square one again. We're talking or hearing a lot, rather, from the UK and I'm reading in the papers here too that we may be in a position to have them soon enough. Antibody tests. What is an antibody test, John? And why is it so important that we have one that works? At the moment, PJ, what happens is when you get tested, they take a swab from the the back of your nose and throat. And I had that done last week as part of a testing nursing home. And it, it, it's a fine test, not the most pleasant test, but it's, it, it's grand. But it takes a while because they have to culture the virus and see if the virus detected or not, so it takes a couple of days. The advantage of an antibody test is that when you're exposed to the virus, your body produces these antibodies in your bloodstream so that if you can detect, detect these antibodies, you could do it very, very quickly, either to a blood test or possibly a finger stick test, ideally. 
um, it means you get a result very, very quickly, and that would enable you to know whether you've been exposed to the virus or whether you've had the infection. Um, the difficulty, one downside with it is you don't know whether you were exposed to the virus three months ago or were you exposed to the virus last week. So that is a challenge for, but it gives a very fast um, answer, and that would help in, the, in terms of tracing. Yeah. There was a disturbing piece of news last evening with what looked like initially a worrying jump in the number of cases. Then we realised that a hospital, we know not what one it is yet, although we have suspicions, we a, a hospital had not been reporting. Yes, and I that's quite disturbing in a way because these figures do matter. You know, it messes up all their calculations. It messes up the R rate, as you were saying. It messes up the projections about how we're doing. So it's not just, oh, they forgot and, you know, that's okay. Now we can get on with it. But it does mess up a lot of those things. And you're making decisions based on the data that you have. So if you're missing a big chunk of data, that does make the decision, you know, it brings some of the decisions into play. You know, the thing, are things worse than you thought, things like that. So that was very unfortunate, I have to say. Yeah. Like, you would think, would you not, as well, that up in the HSE centre where they, or the NEFET, headquarters where they collect all this data where it's reported in would would someone not have said come here we haven't heard from such and such a hospital in in a while would anyone give them a ring there lads you would you You'd think, think that wouldn't you, you? Would, you're absolutely when you put it that way absolutely yeah you know there's no there's no news from x you know what's going on there you know yeah. uh, the you other know, worry so. is john of course if we've these 200 and odd people uh, who and we hope that they all made a full recovery and we have a huge recovery rate which I, I almost forgot to mention we have a very strong recovery rate in this country that were those people contact traced do they even know they had it if they didn't get sick do you know what I mean yeah and actually and, and that's where the whole issue of the last few weeks where people weren't engaging with other people have really paid off because that you would hope has reduced the risk of the spread of um, um, uh, of the virus for those cases. And, you know, we're going to get more situations like this, more anomalies, more things happening. So that redu- the reduction and the importance of social distancing really comes to the fore because it just reduces down that risk. And that's why the very cautious opening up approach has to happen because otherwise the fear is if people have it, it can spread without us knowing it. Okay. Well, it's it's always been great to deal with you over the last seven or eight weeks of the crisis. And as we go forward, we'll talk again very, very soon. Absolutely. And I just want to say, PJ, you know, this is the people of Cork's, you know, effort that has made the difference, that the reason the lockdown has been done. The health service has been great and it's been back up. But it's, it's the behaviour of the people, you know, that has really made a difference. There's always going to be outliers in terms of behaviour, but the vast majority of people have been incredible. All right. All right. Listen, always good to talk to you. Lord Mayor of Cork, uh, Councillor and Dr. John Sheehan, 1850-715-996. No, there will be no driving test centres open for a while. There will be no NCTs happening for a while. In fact, Shane Ross said during the week it could be quite a while before we're able to have NCTs again. Uh, The licences are being renewed. You can renew your licence online. Uh, you can renew your, if you have an existing license you can renew it online but driving tests are not going to happen for the foreseeable NCTs are not going to have or happen for the foreseeable we're hoping to talk to an expert on this antibody testing a little bit later in the morning and and why important why it's so important that we get it 
working soon. And also I'll ask that, that expert about the implications of a hospital not reporting. Because what it did yesterday was it skewed the daily numbers because you get the ping on your phone, or rather I do, I don't know if you're bothered by these things, but I get the ping on my phone every day, sometime between half past five and half past six, and it comes up the number of deaths and the number of daily cases. And all this week, that number has been going down, particularly the number of daily cases. The deaths are fluctuating, but at least they're going down mercifully. But the number of cases yesterday, when I got the ping on my phone, I said, my God, 400 and odd. Then we realise some hospital somewhere we believe it's in the south. Some hospital somewhere has not been reporting. And we would hope that when it is discovered where that hospital is, that somebody will face some kind of a sanction for not reporting. Because as John Sheehan said there, it skews the whole thing. 1850-715-996. Also hoping to talk to... The leader of the opposition, Michal Martin, at some point uh, during the morning. Let's focus, though, on antibody tests for a few minutes with Professor Paul Moyna from Maynooth University. I'll do that next. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the solid fuel depot at Drew's Filling Station, Turner's Cross. Remaining open for all your essential fuels with drive-in or seven-day delivery. Solidfueldepot.ie. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96 FM. Now, as we know at this stage, the COVID-19 story isn't just a Cork story. It's not just an Irish story. It's not just a British story. It's a global news story, a truly global news story. And it happens and it changes and it fluctuates day in, day out, hour in, hour out. It fluctuates. One of the things we've heard a lot about in recent days is antibody tests. Now, the Lord Mayor gave me a brief description of what an antibody test is. They are moving to a point in the UK where they're almost ready to put one out there and start using it. And they're labelling it as a game changer. And I read in this morning's newspapers that we're fairly close as well to having one approved to use here. So let's find out a little bit more about them. We like to bring you the science and the medicine from real scientists and real doctors rather than the University of Twitter. But let's go to the NUI Maynooth and Professor Paul Moyna, who's the Professor of Immunology there. Paul, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. Thank you for taking my call. In very simple layman's terms for John and Mary Soap, what is in what is an antibody test and why is it so important? So basically, PJ, probably for context, uh, probably help in terms of just giving sort of short overview in terms of the testing that we do at the moment. So the testing that we've heard a lot about, it's a PCR-based test. You've heard that term. That's used to directly detect the virus. And that is the test to use at the moment because it detects, it can detect the virus very early on in the infection. The antibody test uh, applies much later on. So once you've been exposed to the virus, you usually produce antibodies against the virus. These antibodies are usually produced after seven to 10 days in most individuals. The importance of them is that they basically allow you to determine if somebody has been exposed and has been infected with the virus. Because one of the key things we don't know at the moment, we don't know how many people 
have been exposed and infected with the virus. The number of positive cases we have at the moment, it's what, mid-20,000s. Obviously, we're not detecting all the cases, and I would contend we're probably only detecting a fraction of those cases. A fraction? Well, I I would say a fraction. So if we look at some of these, uh, some countries have already done preliminary uh, antibody tests to get this term called seroprevalence, which gives you an indication of the percentage of the population that has been exposed to the virus. And some of these numbers are coming out, maybe 5-10% of the population has been exposed. Now, if that was the case with us, uh, and again, we don't know for sure, but if that was the case with us, we're probably looking at maybe, you know, maybe 300,000 cases rather than, you know, maybe just under 30,000. So we're certainly not picking up all the cases, but that's why it's really important to have the antibody test to figure out what proportion of the population has been exposed. And then that importantly allows us to determine what the fatality rate is. Because at the moment, if you look at the number of deaths relative to the number of confirmed positive cases, the fatality rate is maybe 5-6%. Now, the fatality rate is not that high. Some estimates would range from maybe 0.2 up to 1%. So it's probably somewhere within that range. What what you're saying to me, and I hope you're... It's not what you're implying, because maybe we can clarify it. Are you saying to me that the numbers we have been reading out here since since day one are unreliable? Uh, they're not unreliable, but they're only getting a sample, I think, of the actual number of infected uh, cases. So by no means are we detecting all positive cases, because remember... In terms of detecting positive cases, they're based on symptoms. For a number of weeks, they're based on priority groups. So if you didn't fall into those groups, you weren't tested. And we now know, for example, that at least half of the individuals who end up infected are asymptomatic. Um, so by definition, we're definitely not picking up all the, and that's not a surprise, we're definitely not picking up all of the positive cases. So the only question is then, how many are we missing? And based, again, just extrapolating, so this is very approximations, but based on some of the fatality rates that are proposed from other countries that have done this random sampling with antibody tests, if you extrapolated that back to Ireland, we could be looking at situations where we're only detecting maybe between 1 in 5 and 1 in 10 of our positive cases. Right. Now, to know the true number, as it were, how useful would that be? It would be very, very useful because, so basically with the antibody test, because that leaves a permanent signature, well, at least for a number of weeks and probably longer, we can actually capture the number of people who've been infected. So typically what you would do for a seroprevalence study, if you had a good antibody test, is that you would test maybe a random uh, sample from your population. So that could be maybe five, ten thousand 10,000 uh, people. Uh, and you could do that across the country. You could also do it in hotspots as well, for example, like Dublin. And then you could relate that random sample back to extrapolate what the percentage infected cohort is in the population. And that, that would be very useful in terms of not understanding, only understanding in terms of many have got the disease, but in terms of working out how deadly the infection is, the fatality rate, understanding the spread of infection. Right. And, you know, and then how various interventions, as we begin to lift the interventions, that would be very useful in terms of learning how the various interventions have helped in terms of curtailing the transmission of the virus. Okay, so let's bring it down again to basic, and this is probably junior cert biology, if not leaving cert biology anyway. What is an antibody and what does it do? 
So basically, when you're exposed to a virus or indeed anything foreign, so anything that doesn't belong to the body, your immune system recognizes that. And one of the amazing things about the immune system is we've got cells in our body that has the potential to recognize potentially anything out there that is foreign, even though we've never been exposed to it. But the problem is the number of cells that we have, for example, that could directly detect something from the SARS coronavirus 2 are very, 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 very small. So what we need is we need to trigger that process. And we trigger that process and then we, those cells that specifically recognize some of the proteins from the virus, they would proliferate and expand and they would produce these antibodies. And some of those cells actually will go and form memory cells and they can stay for very long time periods in your body. So, for example, in some cases, we get lifelong immunity. For example, in vaccination programs, we get lifelong immunity. But it depends from infection to infection. So with the SARS coronavirus 2, we just don't know. There's Even though you can pick up antibodies, that doesn't definitely mean that you're protected against the virus. But some of the results would suggest that, yes, we are, but we don't know for how long. So it depends on how long that immunity lasts for. So so in in very simple layman's terms an antibody is is a chemical that exists in, inside your body when the virus comes in it, it 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 says you're not welcome here and it chases it out yeah so basically so basically if you, if you look at an antibody and you know you have different terms like neutralizing antibody so an antibody is basically a protein it's a protein it's found in your blood uh, and in neutralizing antibodies so if you produce neutralizing antibodies against the virus basically it interacts with the virus and stops the virus from infecting the cells. That's what a neutralizing okay. antibody is. Okay. So on the, on the surface of the virus, we've got this protein that identifies another protein on cells in the body. The antibody interacts with the virus protein and stops it from unlocking that other protein okay. in the target cell. Because a virus can't can't operate unless it can get inside the cell. Am exactly. I right? it, can, it can only... And then once it gets inside the cell, it hijacks all of the machinery of the yeah. cell to replicate itself. So if you stop... so. A virus in the test tube can't do anything, you can't replicate. So it must get inside another living cell in order to replicate. So if antibodies stop it from infecting the cells, the virus cannot replicate. Fascinating chemistry. And and I'm again extrapolating in my own mind, Paul, that okay, if we if we knew that these people that people had antibodies in them, is it then possible, or am I am I going off the reservation completely? Is it then possible to extract antibodies from people's systems and recreate them in a lab and use them to make medicine. Yeah, so that's actually already been done, PJ. So there's been some small studies, so it's called plasma transfer, where you can take uh, blood from convalescing individuals. So they're individuals who have been exposed to the virus, have been infected with the virus and have recovered. And what you can do then is take blood samples, first of all, determine if the blood contains antibodies against the virus. Secondly, if those antibodies are neutralizing. So in the lab, you can determine if those antibodies can block the infection of cells in the lab uh, by the virus. So you can then take the liquid part of that blood called plasma and transfer and give that to somebody who is suffering and suffering, you know, illness and serious illness from the uh, virus. And again, in terms of small-scale studies so far, uh, that has shown to be uh, produce quite promising effects. The problem is in terms of scaling that. Yeah. So as you say, then, what you can then do, you can actually generate in the lab monoclonal antibodies. These are antibodies that will specifically recognize the virus, and you can make them in the lab. Right. One, one of the problems with that data is in terms of the scale and the expense, it tends to be sort of more personalized approach. So this type of approach where you use antibodies 
and many of them are used, for example, on inflammatory diseases. Uh, but these antibodies are very, very expensive. You know, they can be maybe ten to twenty thousand euro per year per person. So you know, they can be. It's, it's quite sort of tailored. Yeah. Um, but 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 yes, they probably have have a use in terms of cohorts of patients who are very severely ill. I'm thinking in terms of, and um, we've all become very familiar with the face and the voice and the measured delivery of Mike Ryan uh, from the WHO. And and he mentioned again the other day in one of his press briefings, he said, look, we never got rid of HIV. We never got rid of AIDS. But what we did do is we developed good science and medicine to keep it under an incredible level of control do we have to think of coronavirus COVID-19 as something that we may never actually get rid of but we may have to work on controlling it yeah so first of all I would say we definitely have to look at and I think our strategy or national strategy in terms of planning with coronavirus we have to plan in the eventualities that there is no guarantee that a vaccine will come we're very hopeful that a vaccine will come but there is no guarantee so for yeah. example you mentioned hiv that has been around for over 20 years but there is no vaccine but we've learned to live with it and that's because we've very good antiviral drugs now that sort of tend to control uh, hiv uh, but the hiv is still there we haven't eradicated yeah. hiv so we're living with it i think we have to begin and as part of any strategy, I think it's a very dangerous strategy if your strategy is dependent on the generation of a vaccine. Hopefully yeah. that will arrive, or hopefully antivirals will arrive. But we, I think we have to start planning mm. uh, as part of that long term in terms of what if a vaccine uh, is not uh, generated. Well, well, Amanda, you, you, you may well know uh, Jack Lambert um, yeah. said to me two, two and a half weeks ago here on the show, he said, we must bear this in mind. We may never have a vaccine here and those were frightening words but he then went on to say well look like we don't have a vaccine for for aids or hiv so we have to we have to take we may get a vaccine but we have to work as if we don't as if and, we and even, I even think, you know again your listeners probably should appreciate it that even for example if the vaccine is discovered so secondly in terms of you have to make enough of it because basically everybody's going to be looking for it who's going to get it first what countries are are going to get it and then what will the uptake be because not everybody probably will want to take obviously i'd be advocating you know you know in terms of the value of vaccines but you know in terms of the uptake of that and to get to the stage of this term of herd immunity which can really only be achieved safely by vaccination again that depends on uptake so there are a number of factors in there so it's, it's quite a complex uh, um, subject to, to sort of c- consider but i agree with jack in that sense that if we plan that's the worst case scenario. Hopefully, we'll be helped along the way, and then be hopeful in terms of some of the antivirals, yeah. some of the vaccines, and we've many shots on goal, as I always say, and we just yeah. need one of them to, to to score. So, hopefully, but worst case scenario, I think we pl- need to plan strategically for that worst case scenario. People people talk about, and you look pick up any history of the Spanish flu pandemic in in 1918 and mm. the numbers. And the scenarios that that history paints are are horrific. We should reassure ourselves, shouldn't we, Paul, though, that we have far better science. We have infinitely better science and medicine then than those poor people did 102 years ago. Yeah, I think, and I think that's highlighted by the fact, you know, we, this virus has only arrived sort of in December. So in those four or five months, in terms of the pace at which science has moved, well, it's enormous. Uh, and it's really, really impressive in terms of understanding what the, identifying what the cause of the virus was, getting it sequenced, that that's its, its sort of genetic information, getting that sequenced, which then allowed us to generate very specific tests very, very quickly. 
um, the whole thing at the moment in terms of living with it and curtailing it and is detesting. So if we look now in terms of the best defence and probably the only defence we have against the virus at the moment is staying apart and social distancing. Um, but we need to come, as we move out of lockdown, we need to complement that with a very strong uh, testing regimen. Uh, with the strong testing regimen, I think we have a very good chance in terms of being able to you know, suppress this virus, hopefully get, get it down to, to zero. But that really requires very efficient testing and tracing and very, very quick testing and tracing. That's the crucial part. Which, bring, which, not quick. which brings yeah. me to the, the story of the day or the evening was this hospital and we don't exactly know where it is just yet although we have notions of where it might be this hospital that didn't report in 200 and odd cases until yesterday that's worrying yes yeah, worrying in the sense that there, there was obviously systems uh, breakdown there from from a clinical point of view so just to let your listeners know there's, there's two streams of testing there is testing sort of in the hospitals and that's really important and the turnaround time there is really, really quick, which is important for clinical management, clinical management of patients, but also uh, of staff. Then there's community testing and that's really important in terms of looking at the spread of infection and, and capturing that and trying to curtail, obviously, transmission of the virus. In this case, there was obviously a number, stretching back a number of weeks, cases that hadn't been uh, reported. From a clinical management point of view, I would imagine that that's not such a problem in that I would imagine that if it's a patient or a staff member, that again, some action would have followed up immediately. What I would be more concerned about and keen to assess and to be confirmed is that the contacts were traced. That's really, really important. So if you have a situation where you have a positive case, not positive cases, the potential maybe to infect two or three others, suddenly 250 cases become 750 cases and then they will propagate the virus uh, further. So in that sense, it's really important in terms of finding out about that. And it's really important to find out what went wrong to make sure that it wouldn't happen again, but also to make sure that it's not happening elsewhere because we need this information. It's really, really important, but most importantly, in terms of triggering the tracing process, because that is the only process that will allow us to curtail the transmission of the virus. Okay. My last question to you is, and if you take, I'm going to put three names out there and love them or hate them, they're all on the same page. Angela Merkel, Bill Gates, Donald Trump. They're all saying we'll have a vaccine in six months to a year. You, as the scientist, are telling me uh, uh, that might not be true at all. Why are they all trumpeting this all the time, that we may well have a vaccine in six months to a year? I think some of it is based on, in terms of, you know, the rate at which science is moving. Um, but, again, I'd probably be a little bit more cautious. Now, there, there are certainly some reasons to be positive. So, uh, there was a group in Oxford, again, I was surprised in terms of the time frame that they initially mentioned. So we were sort of looking at best case scenario 12 to 18 months. It's a group in Oxford and Jenner Institute, very famous uh, yeah. institute. Um, so they already have vaccine uh, in trials. And yeah. they've, they've mentioned dates like, you know, September, October, again, which sort of surprised me. But 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 they're, these are really credible players in, in yeah. the field. I, I, I read something about that, actually, in the British paper in the last yeah. 48 hours, that that trial seems to be moving well. It's They're happy with well. it. It's moving well, and what they've also done is... 
So there's an organisation, a global alliance, FE, and basically a number of uh, governments, a number of uh, funding agencies, manufacturers have got together. And even for that vaccine, they've already begun to produce very large amounts of that vaccine with the risk that it may actually not work. But if it does work, at least, you know, there'll be some vaccine uh, ready to go. They're using a platform, the technologies they're using, they have used it previously. It has never actually been used in, in humans, but there's some clinical trials with the MERS virus where it suggested actually that it could work. So they're hopeful um, and, you know, time will obviously tell. Obviously, it would be fantastic if we could get... But, but we should have evidence at least, PJ, in September, October, in terms of if it's going to work or not. Okay. Uh, so so that will be interesting. So I'll sort of keep an eye out for that. And my final question, Professor, and, and it's this. We are going to be told later today that it's okay to start uh, easing off on restrictions in, in a small way from Monday. How important is it, Professor Paul Moyne, that we remain vigilant and careful? I think it's really important, especially in terms of the social uh, distancing. I've been very interested in terms of trying to capture the effectiveness of the various interventions, ranging, you know, from social distancing, you know, good hygiene etiquette, closing of schools right down to lockdown. One of the things that surprised me, actually, the effectiveness of uh, social distancing and those other measures prior to lockdown, I think it were very, very strong. So I think the effect that you see for lockdown, it was the right thing to do at the time so the virus was getting out of control. I think the, the effectiveness of it, I think you do get a positive effect, but I think you know a discussion is required in terms of the size of that effect relative to what you give up in terms of whether it be the economy, whether it be also non-COVID uh, healthcare. So as we move from the lockdown, I think we absolutely have to be very cognizant of the need, good um, hygiene etiquette, but especially the social distancing. Okay. And then superimpose that and strengthen that with really fast testing and tracing. I think that should leave us sort of in a reasonably good position going forward. Okay. All right, listen, it's a pleasure to have you on the Opinion Line for the first time. Uh, Professor Paul Moyne, Professor of Immunology at the NUI Maynooth. Thank you, Paul, for, for taking part in the show this morning. 1850-715-996. There's another guy we can put into our bank of solid scientific and medical experts. Since day one, we've had them all. We've had Dr. Catherine Motherway. We've had Professor Sam McConkie. We've had Dr. Jack Lambert. We've had uh, Professor Luke O'Neill. We had Professor Jerry Killeen the other day. And now Professor Paul Moyne. We're doing our best on the Opinion Line to bring you the experts and make it as simple as we can for people to understand where the work is going, where the science is going, where the facts are. Because here's the thing, and I said this last week, the scientists, the doctors, the medics, they will tell you what you need to hear about this. The politicians are reverting to type. Some of them anyway are telling us what we want to hear. We shouldn't be listening to them. We should be listening to the experts. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96 FM. With the Solid Fuel Depot at Drew's Filling Station, Turner's Cross. Open every day for all your solid fuels. Barbecue gas and charcoal. Solidfueldepot.ie This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96 FM. On driving tests, and there won't be a driving test for a while yet at least. Hi PJ, I'm just wondering, do you know if you only have a provisional license, do you still need a full licensed driver with you if you're waiting for your test? That's an extremely good question. The law says that you do. And I think that's the simple answer. 
your provisional license won't run out now while you're waiting for your test, which will obviously be rescheduled until everything's under control again. But I think the law says you do need an experienced driver in the car with you. Probably best to err on the side of caution there. David on WhatsApp, what's the story with NCT and DOE tests not opening? My van's out of date a good few months now, and my tax also. Am I at risk of my van being taken off me at a checkpoint because it's out of date? Well, David, the answer is yes. If your NCT is out of date for a considerable period of time, it's up to the discretion of the guard who stops you. Any NCT that went out of date after this crisis began or any NCT that had to be cancelled, if you've proof of an appointment, then you should be all right. But the more months before March that it was out, the more trouble you might be in. But there won't be an NCT for a bit and there won't be a driving test for a bit. Shane Ross was saying during the week there won't be an NCT for, for months, possibly the end of the summer. 1850-715-996. There's a disturbing story in the Echo uh, to the effect that there has been an outbreak of the COVID-19 virus at a Keepak meat plant in Watergrass Hill. A group of workers there has tested positive for COVID-19. The first results from a mass testing took place on Monday, Tuesday. They've had, they've started to come back, so the Keepak workers tested at the start of this week, and the tests have started to come back and a lot of them are positive. Anne Murphy uh, is from the Echo. Anne, good morning. Good morning, Peter. We've heard about the meat plants being a problem and here it is right in our own neighbourhood. Who's involved? How many of them do you know? At the moment, it's um, it's in flux really because the first results have only started coming back yesterday afternoon. In, um, as far as I'm aware, the first ones came through at around 4pm yesterday. Um, and any that I have heard of has tested positive, but that's a very small number at the moment. Um, the further results will be coming today and possibly tomorrow. Um, so it's, it could probably be early days of next week before we know exactly how many people, and um, if we actually do find out how many people have been infected with, with the COVID-19 virus um, in the Watergrass Hill plant. At the moment, there have been cases over the last couple of weeks as well um, um, that came through because people have been feeling unwell. But as far as I'm aware, some of the people that are testing positive at the moment are asymptomatic and had no idea that they were carrying the virus. About how many people work at that factory? Um, it's, I don't have a concrete figure, but roughly around 650, right, 650 people. Yeah, they have quite a lot of immigrant workers, from people from Brazil and Eastern Europe, and they live right across northeast Cork. People will be very worried. Yeah, I know the local community is, is worried in the North East Cork area at the moment because um, the workers live um, in the different areas from Glenmire to Mitchelstown, so in between the Waterworth Hill, obviously, and uh, from my town as well, um, and Mitchelstown. Um, so people in those areas are concerned because if you're asymptomatic, obviously you're going around and not, um, you know, taking too much cognizance of, of what you're doing because you feel fine. And um, so I know that, that people are a little concerned because um, a lot of the workers would be living together as well in, in, in groupings in houses because 
they are immigrants here um, and so they would be living with other workers or living with uh, different generations of the one family so then in social distancing will be very hard to um, adhere to in such situations. All right, Anne, thank you for that. That's Anne Murphy from from The Echo, that story on The Echo Live website this morning. We'll hopefully speak to Michal Martin later this morning because the Fianna Fáil leader has described the number of clusters in meat plants around the country as gravely serious, and he's looking for, for action. There are cases in Tipperary, in Westmeath, in Offaly already, and now we have confirmed cases at the Keypack meat plant in Watergrass Hill. You are listening to highlights from the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. To hear the full show, download the podcast from iTunes or see 96FM.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. A few responses to Mary's email, which I'll read uh, in a moment or two. 1850-715-996 text to whatsapp 083-396-9696 email opinion at 96fm.ie but I want to come back to the meat factories story we're talking to Anne Murphy from the Echo there before 10 we've confirmation now that a number of workers at the Keypack meat plant in Watergrass Hill have tested positive for COVID-19 there's 650 odd staff there. Uh, staff were tested by the HSE on Monday and Tuesday. The first of the results are back and we have a number of positive tests. Now remember, anywhere that you have more than three people positive in the one place, that is considered to be a cluster. So effectively we now have a cluster at the meat factory plant, in, or the Keypack meat plant in Watergrass Hill. These people live across northeast Cork, Glanmire, Mitchelstown, Fromoy, that general area. They live and they commute in and out to work. Uh, from the meat factory. There are also confirmed cases at plants in Tipperary, in Westmead and in Offaly. Now, Keypack aren't saying anything at the moment, which I guess is their right, but the leader of Fianna Fáil, Michal Martin, has been expressing his concerns. Michal, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Good to talk to you, sir. Absolutely. This, this is very worrying. We're supposed to be starting the exit of lockdown on Monday and we have a serious problem in our meat industry. We have, and what worries me is we've had it for some time, and... Um, I would have alerted authorities as, uh, towards the end of March. Uh, I would have received uh, information uh, from people who would have a close uh, understanding of, of, of meat factories. And it was in a constructive light that I received this. I obviously have to protect my sources, but they were suggesting that the sites were conducive to the spread of, of, of COVID, even though it hadn't uh, at that stage spread, to be, uh, to be straight. Uh, but that workers working cheek by jowl uh, on the manufacturing lines, um, many living in, in, in close proximity to each other uh, outside of, of factories. Um, so you had a situation where you had uh, potential for the spread. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would have alerted the authorities to this. I, I felt the Health and Safety Authority should have been brought in. I don't know whether they have been on site. My understanding is they haven't, but I could be corrected on that. My understanding is the Department of Agriculture would have been alerted to concerns in relation to it. Uh, health would have been as well in the CMO. And um, now obviously factories are you know, regarded as an essential manufacturing facility to provide yes. food uh, and also as an outlet for farmers. So that has to be uh, weighed up and, and understood. But I would have thought maybe measures could have been taken much earlier uh, to prevent the kind of widespread um, clusters that are now emerging. And I also think there should be far more transparency and earlier. In other words, 
let's just announce what's happening. Tell people what's happening in communities and also tell people what's been done to contain the clusters uh, and to protect the wider community because otherwise in the absence of such transparency division arises uh, tensions rise people get concerned about the spread um, does it get spread into the local nursing home for example because people in families you know one could be in a meat factory one could be working in a nursing home yeah. these are the concerns I've received from members of the public I mean some weeks ago I would have been alerted by members of the public in Ross Gray uh, in terms of the Rastera plant, um, and they, they were co- concerned, and they were hearing rumours, um, and rumours are no good in a situation like this. I think you need to nip it in the bud, and I, in the Dáil, and consistently, I've called for greater transparency around the emergence of clusters, not just mm-hmm. in meat plants, but in nursing homes as well. I would have uh, alerted people very early on in terms of St. Finbar's at the very outbreak of this, um, and, and, and again, I've called for transparency around nursing homes about two months ago, uh, and the balance for me as a public representative is not trying to you know, try to be responsible in how you raise issues mm. um, uh, without creating you know panic or uh, anxiety um, now I do know that public health teams have been uh, brought into these uh, uh, situations uh, and have been both um, working out uh, responses to them and in terms of how to contain them and so yeah. on but there is a lot of concern there yeah. And I'm disappointed that like the scale is high in some of the plants up the country. In any event, that the numbers yeah. are high. Like you, you've, you, you mentioned rumours, and we did hear so much about rumour in the last number of weeks. But we don't have rumour now. We have absolute fact, and and we have worrying, worrying facts. Um, and you know, an, an absence of information leads to speculation, leads to these kind of rumours. How do we act though on the factual information that we now have? I think the public health authorities have to, uh, in a much more transparent way, outline to the communities affected what has happened, what measures have been taken uh, to protect the, uh, both workers, obviously, in the first instance, their families, and what measures have been introduced to prevent the continuing spread of it. I mean, I did say the all yesterday, you know, it would have been reasonable, in my view, to have halted production uh, for a minimum for a deep clean uh, and putting in place of new control measures while waiting, for the res- while, no, while waiting for the results, for example. Yeah. In one, sorry, one or two cases it was, in, in, I think in one factory there was a closure um, temporarily, mm. uh, but in, other, in others uh, there weren't. Can, uh, I, can I put to you, Michal, the simplest, ordinary Joe Soap's question yeah. uh, that I think deserves immediate answers? How safe is the meat we are eating? Well, look, there's no question, there's no one have pressing or that I have heard, and I've spoken to public health people in relation to this, placing any issues around the safety to meet. Um, and um, again, th- those two questions... I think, are, should that question not be brought up with Dr. Houlihan and have it should be best directed to, to public health officials. Um, yes, I, I'm not a, a public health official, no. I'm not a public health expert, no. and I'm not going to attempt to... to can, you, can you fire a question up the line and have it answered by Dr. I already Hulahan. have in terms of the, the, the wider issue, and um, as I say, I, would, I pointed out my concerns towards the end of March. Uh, about the, the, uh, an anticipation of this and people who were close to it. Um, and that's what annoys me to some extent, um, that I'm not clear as to whether sufficiently strong preemptive measures were taken to stop the spread of this. And I know it's not easy, but at the same time, uh, the numbers now are quite high, and at, at a minimum now, I do think it needs a more transparent public health response okay. uh, and governmental response. Okay. It would be nice to get an answer as to the safety of it. Though. Finally, Michal, when will we have a government? 
Um, uh, the talks are ongoing. Uh, I, I think the three leaders spoke in the last two days. Uh, we agreed to up the pace of this. Um, but the talks are going well. There's a lot of earnestness there. Uh, there's engagement. Uh, I would hope um, w- w- over the next number of weeks that the, the, it'll become more clearer in terms of the actual timeline for the formation of a government. But certainly, you know, the economic challenges out there are enormous. There's no point in saying they are not. Mm. It does need a government uh, with a majority that can have a um, five-year outline, in my view. It's going to be a, rot- it's going to be a rotten be job for the first couple of years. It really is going to be a rotten it job. It will be. Yeah. It'll be very okay. tough. It'll be very tough and challenging. But uh, look, look, the people require, in my view, a government. The country does. We can get through this. Okay. But I don't understate the economic challenges that are ahead of us. Okay. And not just in Ireland, but we're in an open economy. This is a genuine economy. global one, yeah. We, we just, just one last thing, because I forgot to, to, to mention it to you. And we believe it's in the south. And we're investigating furiously here to find out where it is. A hospital not properly reporting its figures on a day-to-day basis. I couldn't understand that when I heard it yesterday. I don't know where the hospital is, if that's the question. <laughs> I don't. I just couldn't believe it, PJ, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, how that happened, you know. Um, and um, I think someone needs to explain. It's failure at some level. At some level it is. Um, and I think we need to, to, to make sure it hasn't happened elsewhere. Uh, and that has cleared up. Um, no, we are in the middle of an unprecedented health pan- pandemic. I... I, and the door yesterday I made it clear that we're not going to have an error-free response. There will be mistakes made, oh, yeah. mistakes, and, and I think that needs to be weighed up as well because in the middle of a crisis, people have to take decisions. I don't know how this happened, and I, I think it needs explanation. But we're, we're, enti- we're entitled to that explanation because yeah. Dr. Yeah. Holdahan certainly had his kind of I'm not impressed face on him last evening when he was telling us this. All right, Michal, leave it there. I mean, I can only. He needs real-time data uh, yeah. in terms of of and, and up-to-date data and accurate data in terms of making decisions in terms of lifting restrictions. Um, and, and that's something he, you know it, it's very difficult for him and the, the public health team if 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 the data isn't accurate and up-to-date. All right, we leave it there for now. Thanks very much, Michal Martin, leader of Fianna Fáil. Just on the the meat and and the whole how safe is the meat I'm eating, which is a question that will enter your mind. Well, let's be fair about this here now. Raw meat. We don't eat a lot of it. We're not given to eating raw meat in this country. So raw meat will be cooked. And any meat properly cooked will be safe to eat. And and processed meat is cooked in a sterile environment. So the old processed stuff, you get, that's cooked in a sterile environment from the moment it's cooked. So in generally, and I'm not, I'm not a public health expert, but in general one would imagine that the meat you're eating is quite safe. Quite safe. Once it's properly cooked. 1850-715-996. The future Taoiseach, rotating or not, and neither the opposition, uh, doesn't know where this hospital is, says John. No, he says he doesn't. No one seems to know. There was a couple of theories doing the rounds last night and this morning. We're privately working away on one or two of them here. We're not going to state anything until we know it for sure. We're working on it. Uh, I also uh, asked uh, a very solid medical contact of the show if he'd have a look into it for us. He wasn't able to come up with anything concrete by late last night. So wherever it is, it's not going to be easy to, to locate it. 1850-715-996. Just on the private healthcare email that I read out before 10 from Mary. It's not her real name, but we have to give her a name. She said... She and her husband have private health care. They are not big earners. 
most of the time they live in their overdraft. But they wanted to provide the best possible care for themselves and their children. So they made sacrifices in other areas, like they don't go out much, they don't eat out much, they don't have new smartphones, they don't have Xboxes, etc., etc., etc. They only buy clothes when they need them. She dyes her own hair. This way they can save money and buy important things as she sees it like the private health insurance. And she referred to her friends who say they can't afford it, to which she says, actually, no, you choose not to. That was the gist of her email. Ellie says, why are people still having to pay for VHI anyway when they're not getting any cover? The health board paid for my mother's last infusion, but also she still has to pay VHI. Well, I got a letter from VHI a few weeks ago. I'm a VHI subscriber. Wouldn't be without it. It's expensive, but I need it for my family. And I'm lucky enough to be able to afford it. I, I got a letter saying I would be getting something back. And then the last direct debit went out as normal. So I haven't got anything back yet. Uh, private health insurance, I agree totally with that woman, says this message. I had an appointment in June, cancelled. Went forward to August. No guarantee it'll go ahead. Still paying, but for what? I'm raging. Uh, the surge didn't happen. Government need to, start, need to sort it out now. Eileen called to say she fully backs the emailer. It's a sacrifice she made, and now when she needs it, she can't get it. It's not fair. Private health insurance, I agree with that woman. I had an appointment in June, cancelled that. That's the same one again. Kate says it's nobody's business but her own. She's doing what she feels is right for her children. But Kevin says, wow, why should life be a punishment when it comes to a three-tier health system? Health snobs come in all sizes. Mary, you've been brainwashed, says Kevin. And Elaine says, I think Mary makes a valid point in re-health insurance. She's making sacrifices to be able to pay this for her family, and that's her choice. Plenty can afford to pay for it, but are choosing not to, as they prefer to go on holiday, have meals out, and have a good standard of life. 1850-715-996. Happy to take more comments on that, uh, should we get them. Let's catch up with uh, Donna. Remember Donna? Donna had a fundraiser idea. It's going really, really well. And to remind you that we will be talking to Anna Hardwick. Anna <coughs> Hardwick. Well, that's yeah, Anna Hardwick from from normal people. Eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. The opinion line on Corks ninety six FM with the self service laundrette at Drew's Filling Station, Turner's Cross. Spacious, convenient, and still open every day. Self service laundry ie. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. 
With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show, The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. April 24th, Donna, was to be the best day of your lives. Twelve years together, two children, two years planning it. It was nearly here, but COVID-19 got involved. We talked before, didn't we? We did, we did. We spoke last month on the 27th of April. The day it was supposed to be... You, You had to be talked out of going to Tesco in the wedding dress. I did, yes. That's right. (laughs) <laughs> I think he thought I was going to go to Tesco in the wedding dress. He was putting <laughs> ideas into my head. <laughs> you went down to the church, you took some photographs. Nice occasion. It was. It was lovely and it turned into be this big thing where which we only which I only went over to take a few photos just to kind of mark the day. Yeah. And then it ended up a load of people were sharing the video and I got offered to come on your show and then when I came on your show um I decided to give away my wedding dress and now I'm after getting I've nine different things to give away with the wedding dress what else have you got so I've got a 200 euro voucher from Simply Suits I've got a 500 voucher of new chapter film photography or wedding package um, video package sorry mm. I've got Photo Island Resort Hotel is after giving me tea for two um, nice. afternoon tea for two um, bridal party wedding here by myself. I will actually, whoever wins the wedding dress, I will go and I will do their, I'm a hairdresser. Okay. So I will do their wedding here for their bridesmaids, the mother of the bride, the mother of the groom, and um, the bride, the wedding dress, the veil. I've got um, um, Liam McCarthy is a celebrant and he's going to give away a free ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, Terbulgan Holiday Village is after giving me a voucher for two adults and three children nice. um, family pass and wedding bells, bridal accessories and gifts in Castle Martyr is after giving me something as well And this is all going to who? This is all going to, so basically um, the fundraiser I'm doing was for local PPE and for Peter House yeah. and ha- I was splitting the money down the middle between both, yeah, and um, whoever go, donates, you set, a, you set up a GoFundMe page. I the, set up a GoFundMe. I did, and whoever donates, it could be a fiver, a tenner, because um, times are tough now. Do you know what I mean? So whoever donates is in automatically put into a raffle, right. and then once I reach my target, some lucky person's going to win all of them. 
a whole lot. So it's like a little mini wedding except the hotel. Yeah, but come here. There's a dress, there's photos, there's videos, there's God knows what else. Now, I looked at this this morning at around quarter past eight, and right. you were on 2,480 euro. Yep, that's correct. So I'm literally just... 500 euro is... I'm off my target. 518 euro off my three grand. Let's have a look and see how live it is. Uh, okay, let's 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 refresh the page. I have it open here in front of me now. Two thousand four hundred and ninety-two, and your target is three thousand. Three thousand. And everybody who makes a donation is in the raffle. Yeah, so I think there's like over a hundred and like as if you might be able to see it there, maybe a hundred and twenty to forty people have donated already. One hundred and thirty-three donors. Thirty-three. Yeah. So. Yeah, anyone that makes a donation is in the raffle. Now, if they don't, obviously, like, there's been a load of fellas that probably would have no interest in winning it and would just, like, it's just after donating. But, like, if somebody could even write a little message at the end to say that they would love to be in the raffle or not in the raffle. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool idea. So at the moment, you're 2,490. You want to make 3,000. You'll split it between Pieta House and... Uh, buying some PPE for, for frontline workers. Yep, so I've already handed over 1500 to a local man in Yall. His name is Joe O'Connell, and he's after putting in an order of 1500 worth of PPE Brilliant. for our local community. It's going to cover our GP surgeries, our um, healthcare homes. Right. I think he said he's after ordering a th- out of the money already a thermometer for... Um, you can read it, I think you can read it literally just as somebody walked in, you can actually just read it. Oh, yes. I think, I think that's what he was saying. Like a scanner, and for yeah. The care, yeah, for the care homes in y'all, for when, um, when, when restrictions do kind of ease and you can have a visitor, I think they want to scan them before they enter Brilliant. the property. Yeah. So um, that's already after being ordered. The business. So, come here, yeah. come here. All that. But as I, when are you going to actually have an actual wedding now? Oh, and so what are you going plan- to wear? So I'll have to get a new dress. I knew the minute there was a picture taken of me in that dress. You see, it wasn't um, altered or fitting me, but I knew the minute someone took a picture of me in that dress, I was never going to wear it again. Why not? So, oh, you couldn't. Oh, you could. You couldn't. It's so unprecedented times. You could. <laughs> not at all. No way. So I knew I couldn't wear that style dress anymore. So I'll have to go something totally different now. This time, this time around, if it'll happen. <laughs> well, I think after 12 years and one, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably 2021, I suppose, at this stage. Uh, he's probably only delighted. No, I'm only messing. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell him if it doesn't happen, you'll definitely go to Tesco. <laughs> I will definitely go to Tesco next year in a different wedding dress. <laughs> You were just get married in Tesco, is that? <laughs> yes. Here, could be a possibility now. Well, at least you can get in there. I know, true, true. But we can't go together. We'll have to pretend we're separate. Take two separate trolleys. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah, right? yeah, let, yeah. Let, him, let him go in the, in, the, in the suit, 10 feet behind you in the crew, in, in the queue, and you take another trolley in, in the dress and then get the best man. This could make some great television. Yeah, I'm telling you. Net, you just don't Netflix know now. Anything is possible. <laughs> Donna, listen, Anything you're doing great. You're doing great work uh, with the fundraiser, and congratulations. Yeah, so, so look, hopefully, I'll meet my target. I'm only five hundred euro away, and somebody could win a little mini wedding here if um, 
five euro donation, ten euro donation, anything will help, really. Okay. All right. Listen, good luck, Donna, and always good to talk to you. Good crack. Thanks very much. You're very good for inviting me on again. Cheers. That's Donna Savage. Uh, she was supposed to get married. She didn't get married. She threatened to go to Tesco in the wedding dress, but just went to the church instead. And she's raised now 2,490-odd euro for Pete House and for PPE. And she's got that huge raffle package, including the wedding dress, to give away. 1850-715-996. Fiona Corcoran has produced another one of her frontline diaries as we continue to go through this pandemic and pay tribute to those who are working on the front line, doing a top job, no matter what it is. And she's got another one of those diaries with Feed Cork next. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the solid fuel depot at Drew's Filling Station, Turner's Cross. Remaining open for all your essential fuels with drive-in or seven-day delivery. Solidfueldepot.ie This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Live to studio, Fiona, where I could hear you setting up for homeschool in a few minutes, Fee. How are you? It's lively there. Is she there? Ah, oh, she was there a second ago. Oh, here she is. You there, Fee? You there, Fee? Oh, I am, PJ. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I could hear you setting you up the school. Up school. <laughs> <laughs> Praying that they'll be quiet for five minutes. I'll give them two minutes. All right, okay. Now, you've been doing another one of your uh, frontline heroes packages for us. Explain where you've been this week and what you've been doing. That's right, PJ. Uh, this week I went to Feed Cork and I suppose when we think of frontline workers, we automatically think of those who are working in a healthcare setting. But there are thousands of volunteers all over the city who are, I suppose, putting their their own health at risk every day to come in and, and work and help those who are maybe in, in need of food or, or supplies of some sort uh, throughout the city. And um, Feed Cork is one of those organisations. Now, they've been operating out of uh, premises on Lower Oliver Plunkett Street in the city for the last three years. And they were telling me that they started off with delivering four or five food hampers every week. Um, and before this pandemic, that number had increased to 200. And the way it operated was that people would come to the centre every Wednesday, collect a food hamper that would have been made up by the volunteers inside and... Um, head off but now because of the the restrictions they've had to close to the public and change the way they operate and they're now delivering food hampers around the city and they also operate a uh, drive-in or drive-through uh, one day a week by appointment only and I think one of the most um, interesting and most stark things that I learned when I was talking to them was that that number of hampers that they're giving out every week has increased to 300 yeah. over the past couple of weeks since the pandemic hit us here and I suppose it's indicative of the amount of people who are relying now on um, on, on charities to, to help feed them and their families and you know with unemployment and you know people who they were saying that there are a group of people who uh, came over here to study English and um, they've been left now with uh, no employment and they're not entitled to any state benefit and yeah. You know that, uh, and there there are plenty of people who, you know, had had jobs, um, had maybe high mortgages, 
um, and they're now um, out of work and they are receiving the government payment but that's probably just going towards the mortgage and they have no money left then to feed their families so it's an incredible operation there and I suppose PJ as well I visited Feed Cork before Christmas and they have a cafe in there as well and when you come up to the premises on a Wednesday, the first thing that hits you is the number of people who are queuing up outside to get in. And, yeah. you know, that in itself is, is quite a sad sight. But once you get inside, there's this amazing buzz in there and real warmth and friendliness. And it's a real hive of activity. And they have a cafe in the premises where people can go and sit down and have a cup of coffee and a chat with people that they might see every week there. And it's a, it's a social outing for people as mm. well. And, you know, all that now is gone the doors are closed and um, you know you come in and you have to get the hand sanitizer and they're all wearing their masks and their face shields in there and uh, you know they've um, they've had to um, take out some of the offices that they yeah. would have had in there uh, because of social distancing. It, it really is dark the con- sorry, it's, it's sorry. dark the contrast isn't it Fiona mm. having gone in there maybe a couple of months ago where all was well and the cafe and the, like you said the warm atmosphere now it's all gone very clinical mm. and following all these new rules and not knowing how long they're going to be with us for and yet still getting on with it that's it and you know they said to me that there is there, there has been a core group of volunteers who were allowed in um, over the last couple of weeks and only those volunteers were allowed in. Now, this week, they have opened the doors to to more volunteers to help out. And even when I was in there, there was a contractor tiling the floor because I said they've had to carry out quite a lot of renovations or they will have to carry out a lot of renovations now to help them reopen in a couple of months um, because of the whole social distancing. And um, so they're allowing some people in, but it's still very strict on the amount of people who can come in um and you know it's 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 an incredible it is incredible to see it when you know when you compare it to what was there before to what's there now and you know they said that they would hope that they would be able to reopen again before the end of the year but they don't know what way that's going to be or how it's going to operate they you know they would have opened their doors to the public once a week they may have to do that now across five days because of you know social distancing and people might have to make an appointment to come in um and i suppose pj as well it's, it's important to point out as well that um they're getting donations of food from uh, restaurants and cafes still right across the city um, and i know that penny dinners are the same as well so you know there are restaurants who are still uh, giving supplies to these places um, um but obviously that ha- that number has gone down quite a lot as well um and fee cork as well have tied in with cork city council as part of their community calls so they're helping them to get to families as well at the minute so there's a huge voluntary effort going on in the city at the minute and it's really remarkable what people are doing Indeed it is, indeed it is. Fiona, thanks very much. Uh, let that package run now, your visit to, to Feed Cork. And we'll chat to you again next week for another uh, one of Fiona's Frontline Diaries. Thanks very much, our senior news reporter, Fiona Cork. And apologies for a slight echo on that line there. The doors at Feed Cork on Lower Oliver Plunkett Street are now closed to the public. The warmth and friendliness remains, but the atmosphere now is very different. The buzz is still here. We still have the the banter and the warmth and all of that, but it is totally different. You know, you don't get to see 
the people every week that you normally get to see. That's Director Hamp Sermons who explains how the service is now operating. We do deliveries on Tuesday and Wednesdays. We have a number that people can call uh, if they want a basket. We also have a Thursday drive through where people can come up by appointment to the front door. They don't even get out of their car. They pull up, they pop the boot, we put the food in for them, and then they head away. So that's been working really well. The number of food hampers being given out every week has risen from 200 before the pandemic to 300 and growing. A core group of volunteers are responsible for packing, loading and delivering those hampers, affectionately known here as the Dream Team. One of them is Liam Fitzgerald. It's awkward, but at least we're getting to the people that need it. And that's the important thing, to be honest. Especially you now, it's, it's, it's getting bigger by the week. You know, it's going up maybe 10, 20% by week. But, you know, if that's what needs to be done, we're going to make sure that we can try to do our best, you know, to help them out. And coordinating all the volunteers is Sharon Mullins. So this is the first week that we've introduced more volunteers back in. Again, trying to adhere to all the social distancing and all the HSE regulations. And uh, it is, it's a challenge, like, and I, that's the same for everybody, you know, but like, this is the way we're going to be living our lives, I think, going forward, so. I asked Sharon what drives a volunteer to put their own health at risk when they're not getting paid. I suppose if it's in, yeah, you know what I mean, if you want to give back, you just give back. And I think really once, once we make sure that we have everything provided for them, they have a sense of confidence when they're coming in then because they have everything that they should have. Liam, who started volunteering with Feed Cork 16 months ago, explains what he loves about the place and what gets them through each day. Just a bit of banter between ourselves, you know, it's like anywhere else, you know, the slagging starts when you come in and it finishes when you go home and then we have a WhatsApp group and they're at it again at that, you know, so it's, it's really great. You know. Feed Cork are supported by Food Cloud and local vendors who continue to donate food throughout the current crisis. So people are really pulling together and that's the one thing you do see this time, people are really pulling together. And when does HAMP think they'll get back to normal? It'll be a slower process going back, uh, but we will have people back in again. Uh, you know, probably by the end of the year anyway, on a more, we might have to do a five-day thing instead of a one- or two-day thing that we were doing before so we can spread it out and people can come in and enjoy the cafe because that's a big part of what we do. We're more than a food bank that way. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know when it's going to happen, hopefully sooner rather than later, but we'll be ready for, for that. At the latest in Fiona's Frontline Diaries featuring the incredible work of Feed Cork and Small personal note, uh, good to hear my friend Sharon Milan being, or Sharon Mullins rather, being uh, interviewed in the course of that because uh, she keeps the, the things going and the wheels turning down there and the belt the conveyor belts going week in week out, herself and the rest of the team but it's always good to catch up with, with Sharon when I can and because of this blasted pandemic she's just one of the many friends I haven't seen in a very long time 1850-715-996 text to whatsapp 083-396-9696 and the email opinion at 96mm.ie something we are doing occasionally not all the time, today we're doing two books but we're bringing books to the program because when you're stuck inside with no pub to go to, no match to go to, no concert to go to and no cinema and no theatre and need I go on a good book, a good book can pass away a few hours there's a new book out on the 1970s arms crisis which is part of our history, hard to believe it's 50 years ago now 
And of course, look, the Charlie Hawhey was sacked. Neil Blaney was sacked by Jack Lynch, who was Taoiseach. Uh, they were sacked on the 6th of May 1970 over their involvement in allegedly illegally gun running. Uh, they created a major political crisis and earthquake at the time and probably the most infamous, notorious criminal trial of the whole of the last century in this country, namely the arms trial. And it sort of set a permanent mark on Irish politics. Many books have been written on the subject of the arms trial, but a new one by Dr. Michael Heaney uh, is is out now. And it's, it's different uh, because Michael, uh, he joins me now, Michael... I'd have to put it to you that this book doesn't paint Charlie or doesn't paint Jack Lynch in a light that uh, his his Cork supporters would be impressed with. Good morning. Good morning, PJ, and thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, this is a bit like uh, Daniel in the Lion's Den talking on Cork FM about this book. Um, yeah, it's uh, my findings. Um, I'm afraid for your listeners' blood pressure are quite hard on Jack Lynch, in particular what I describe as the myth of Lynch as a hero in 1970. What what I find about Lynch is that he was something of a serial deceiver, along with his minister, James Gibbons. Uh, he told many untruths, many of them to the Dáil, to the Committee of Public Accounts when they came to him. And the reason was because he had a northern policy to which he was never able to admit. He, he, he had a policy that was hidden and has never really been acknowledged until now. Now, you were working as a, a television journalist for RTE, and you've been kind of researching this book for many, many, many years. I have indeed, really. In my career in the Irish Times started... Uh, I, I reported on um, on the on events surrounding it in in, in 1969, uh, 1970. Uh, but more particularly, uh, I've spent uh, six full years um, researching it in UCD for uh, a doctoral research under Diarmuid Ferreter, and that is the research that underlies this book. And, and at what point did you discover uh, that Jack Lynch wasn't? if you like, the, the guy we all painted him as down here in Cork? Well, look, Jack Lynch, um, I mean, it's been, it's not entirely new to say that, you know, that Jack has a bit of a tainted record in this. It's been out there, Vincent Brown in particular has has explained about this. Um, but, it, so it, it has been out there, but um, Lynch, Lynch just um, in his statements to the Dáil, uh, when you compare them with with the, with the facts, uh, you find I found that he made at least thirty false statements, um, many more actually. I, I think it's probably closer to forty. I presume you can back them all up. Well, in the book, I document them and chapter and verse in every instance, and and this is one thing I should say about the book. Uh, PJ, it's a big book. It's 440 pages. There's a lot of new material in it, and it's really something that people have to read because there's material in it that nobody actually has seen before. And so, you, you, there's no point in having an argument about the book's findings until somebody has read it, and then can say, "Well, I don't accept that conclusion. That evidence does not uh, support that conclusion." I would say. Uh, that the book is evidence-based, and if it is not evidence-based, then the, the, the conclusions and the findings fall. 
Mm. Well, what is your what is your what is your theory now with regard to 1970, or what is your belief now with regard to 1970? The unfor- it's a, it's really I don't use the word scandal in the book, but I'm talking on the radio now. It really is something of a scandal. The reality is that there have been several large myths, M Y T H S, perpetrated about the arms crisis. What would they be? One of them, the prominent one, is Lynch as hero. Jack Lynch, who uncovered a subversive plot within his own cabinet um, and suddenly um, upended it, ousted the treacherous ministers and saved the country from a a dangerous future with regard to Northern Ireland. The second supporting myth is that of Hawhey and Blaney, whom he sacked, as evil conspirators. It's good guys against bad guys. It's black and white. It's never been fully credible. And the evidence in my book, I would claim, um, demolishes these myths. And also indicates very clearly that two army men, and if anything has driven me in this research, it's what happened to two army officers, Captain James Kelly and his boss, Colonel Michael Heffern. And uh, the book would claim that these men have been seriously abused and remain abused in the public eye um, even 50 years on, which I think is utterly insupportable if it's true. That our record of or our belief in their in, in their role is wrong. Yes, Heffern, Heffern demolishes the theory that um, that this was a, a, a serious plot against Lynch. I mean, Heffern was Kelly's commanding officer, and he knew all about it. Kelly told Heffern, and more than that, Heffern told Gibbons. This is what the evidence shows utterly clearly. And on, if they had charged uh, Colonel Michael Heffern, and if they had charged Jim Gibbons, then Jack Lynch would have had a position that could be supported. But both these men, that is to say Heffern, as Kelly's commanding officer, I mean, Kelly told his boss. So what kind of a, what kind of a plot is that? And this guy is at the very top of the army. And his boss tells the minister. And I mean, so where's the plot now? Yeah, yeah. Gibbons is in it. So if Gibbons is in the plot... Lynch is in the plot. Now, you mentioned Vincent Brown, and, and Vincent Brown, when he was on television regularly, used to say to us, take another look at what you think of Jack Lynch in the arms crisis. He, he regularly made pronouncements of that sort. But why do you think the accepted narrative, Michael, has been of Lynch as hero? Well, look, PJ, there's been a great deal of untruths and false statements made about this. This is what has prevented uh, historians, researchers, writers generally getting at, the, getting at the, the truth. One of the key things you have to do when you look at the arms crisis story is you have to decide who is telling the truth. And what I find is that the politicians, all of them, that is to say Lynch, Gibbons, Hawhey, not Blaney so much, um, were utterly unreliable. The people who are reliable are the public servants, uh, people like um, um, Tony Fagan in the Department of Finance, um, uh, even Peter Berry, uh, Colonel Michael Heffern, the public servants uh, who, who told... And you have, to, you have to discriminate between those whose evidence is credible and reliable and those whose evidence is not. And usually it's the politicians in 1970 uh, who are 
deceiving. Are you suggesting to me, Michael, that after all these years, uh, you are proving what many of us believe that we can't always we can't always rely on politicians to be accurate in what they say? <laughs> yes, no great surprise. Uh, the Pope is a Catholic. Um, politicians tell us, and Jack Lynch, who is a decent man, but I think he may have regretted. I believe I have no evidence for this, but I believe he may have regretted what he did to Jim Kelly, to Captain Jim Kelly. I mean, I think that must have weighed on his conscience because he was a decent man. He, 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 he threw him under the bus. He in, threw in him no... under the bus, yeah. yeah. Jack, it's not that Jack... Jack was Taoiseach. He was leader of Fianna Fáil. He was leader of the country. He was, he was more devious than most people remember or are aware of. Well, we often heard of the iron fist and the velvet glove and that you wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of him when he had clenched that fist. We yes. often, we always heard that about Jack. Yes, the nice man with the lovely big eyes and the pipe, but he did what he felt he had to do, <laughs> and what he had to do in Fianna fin, in Fáil terms, and for the government perhaps to survive, to keep it in, in office, was to sack Hawhey and Blaney and throw them overboard. And he did it, and he saved his government and frankly, I mean, I don't, it's, the picture I present is nuanced. Jack probably, it was about the only thing he could have done in the situation that existed in, May, on May the 5th, yeah. 1970. He was, he was faced with, with, no, with no option. Yeah, but he created the situation himself. He put himself in that position. Yes, he He had. put himself into a position where he had no option but to sack Blaney and High. Well, in Fianna Fáil's interests, but and and you could say, look, who's going to weep for these big politicians? Hawhey, I mean, Hawhey survived. Blaney had a very different career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the army men who went down with the ship here, or were oh, well, they were they were clearly thrown thrown under the bus, as, as, as not, you now say. That is not acceptable in because army term. men never spoke out. Who didn't speak out? Army people never spoke. No, the, the, the army has is not is a very timid organization when it comes to these kind of matters. Mm. And uh, Kelly and his family today, and the family of Colonel Michael Heffern, who was the kind of hidden casualty of this. A lovely man, great. He was a hero. Heffern stood up for his junior minister and took a great degree of abuse and okay. contumely in his later years. Michael, I'm going to leave it there. It's fascinating. Uh, Re-examination of, of one of the key moments in our history of the past 50 years. Thank you very much. That's Michael Heaney. Dr. Michael Heaney uh, has written a book called The Arm Crisis 1970, The Plot That Never Was. It'll have a big readership in Cork because of Jack was no hero is his theory. You are listening to highlights from the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. To hear the full show, download the podcast from iTunes or see 96FM.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96FM. Some people across with me for letting Michael Heaney take a pop at uh, Jack Lynch. The revered Jack Lynch great Corkman, greatest Corkman of all time some people might say, well you know what, go and read the book there's things in that book that we didn't know about Jack before and Dr Heaney spent a long time researching those things and it seems to be more about politics around the cabinet table than it was about guns that's what he's saying, I'm not saying I believe it I'm not saying I absolutely believe it I remember Jack and the time, the 
an arms, I was only a small boy, but I remember the arms crisis. It was a huge, huge news story, enormous news story. The, 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 the people within Fianna Fáil who were supporters of Fianna Fáil never forgave either side afterwards. It was it was really vicious and nasty. And a lot of people at the time, when I was a young fella, a lot of people didn't agree with Jack being the hero, that he shouldn't have done what he did to Hockey and Blaney. A lot of people didn't believe that. We wanted to talk to Michael about his new book. I look forward to reading it over the summer. 1850-715-996. The text to WhatsApp 083-396-9696. And the email opinion at 96fm.ie. Ken says the whole thing would make a great movie. Oh, it would make a whole great Netflix series. You'd get at least, what, Netflix, the way they do things. They get about 45 episodes out of it. But no, seriously, it would make a very, very good Netflix series. I think it would need to be done by somebody like Netflix because of the vast budget it would require and the way they could come in and at it as an outside company and, and do it in the way they did The Crown, where we get a look back at the history of the, the, the royal family and, and all of that. I'd love to see Netflix do something on the arms trial. Kevin says, we look back at that period of time, there's no way politicians would have got away with a fraction of what they did. In today's world, the 24-hour media and social media would have exposed it all, and that's not wrong. 1850-715-996, and it's a small world. I mean, how small is the world? Mags tweets, and I said, I read it twice, I said, she's joking, she's joking. Mags tweets, my mum was the court stenographer for that trial, so I've always found this particular part of our history to be fascinating. Now, that's a small, little world. Anna Hardwick, good morning, sir. PJ, how are you? I'm not too bad. I was reminding my listeners, in particular my female listeners, who are awake to hear you on the programme. Wake they are. That you and I had a pint together. This is no big deal. When I met you in the cat club with my good friend Irene Kelleher last year. The photo crossed, I, I, my path again recently, I saw it, and uh, yeah, I was reminded of that, we had a great chat that night. Yeah. I saw you on the show, and I said, I know that face, that's, 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 that's Anna. Tell me about being involved in normal people, it's just the biggest thing on television in Yonks. It seems that way, that was probably actually, the, when we when we met and when I was doing uh, the play with the wonderful Irene that time that was I'd say just as we were finishing filming so it's been kind of whatever seven months I suppose since then it's like you kind of forget about it you have a great time doing it mm. and then it's got this whole kind of second life now when it meets an audience and it's like yeah totally beyond anything I expected and mm. um, it's been it's been incredible you had no idea at the time that this would... I mean, obviously, you'd probably read the book and, and it'd been yeah, an exciting yeah. thing to be involved in as a project. Then it hits the television screens and it goes bananas. You know, you're, you're dead right. Like, there was... We, we, I knew the book was special and I loved it. And then when you're making it, you kind of go, oh, I think we're onto something here. Especially when you see, like, Daisy and Paul, the actors that they are, when you see them at work, I kind of thought, this is this is going to be good but um, you just never know and uh, it definitely has exceeded even the high expectations I had for it but uh, it's, it's probably you know I'm, I'm not surprised as well because it is a story that genuinely everyone in a very either in a very specific way or in a more kind of universal way can relate to um, and I think 
especially now as well. I think people are enjoying it even more than they are, are I suppose they're getting to watch it even more than they would um, given the current situation. Yeah. For people who are watching it like the old way, as in haven't streamed yeah. the whole thing, you've kind of just come into it as, as Rob, Rob Hegarty. And, yeah. and you're going to play a fairly significant role. There's kind of a subplot in it. What can we expect from Rob? That's, uh, yeah, very good, very good point. Um, without giving too much away, I suppose, um, he's, I, I loved playing the part. I think it's, um, if you kind of think of him and Connell and that group, um, I suppose Rob is maybe, um, they're, they're, they're very, very close school friends. And I suppose where the storyline takes it is, I suppose, they, they kind of go down different life paths and, that was really um I loved playing that because uh is for those who watched I suppose who were up to date, there's a scene in episode four where we kinda of meet again, um, where Connell is back from uh back from Dublin for a weekend. And uh I suppose it just is something we can all sort of relate to and remember because when you leave school all those friendships you've built up and that whole life you've built up kind of is starting to change um, by you know, just by the kind of life choices you're making, yeah. whether you're going to college or going on to a job, and I think that's a really big part of the book. Is kind it's, of leaving it's happened to that. us all in in that we've all been so close with people through school. Then you leave school and you go on, and some people go to college, and some people go to work, and some people go elsewhere, and some people emigrate, and then you meet this person half a dozen years later, and you start wondering one of two things: one why the hell did I like this person in the first place? Or secondly, how come we didn't get on like this in school? Yeah. You totally yeah. reevaluate all it's those relationships. Totally. And and there's it's such a big thing for, for Connell in the book because I suppose he, and, and in the series, because he kind of sees those as almost two lives. And uh, there's, there's times when he's studying up in Dublin where he feels like he wants to go back to that and has he kind of left that behind forever. So it's a really big thing for, as you say, for everyone who kind of go you know, goes from school into the into the, the big bad world and um I like that was really that was great to play because I don't know if I'll ever get to do something that feels that close to um to reality or mm. to the kind of the life I've lived and stuff. So it, it, it was um you know, it was a, a a weirdly kind of um it was it was a bit surreal sometimes filming all those scenes because you're going, I've I've been here before, I've I've definitely, you know, had but these conversations. You've only been there like you're only 23, I'm a yeah, little yeah. bit older than 23, <laughs> and 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 I'm looking back at at, at, this, at these scenes and going, I can remember feeling like that. I oh, can remember great. thinking that way. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's always, and you're it kind of, oh Jesus, were we really them eat that kind of an idiot? Like, <laughs> were we really idiots like that? We were. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's it's so great to hear that reaction and to see that from people over the last few weeks because it is like it's a mixture of I suppose nostalgia and as you're saying going oh my god were we really like that um, so that's like if you can have a strong reaction like that with anything then you know happy mm. days. What about the sex? Oh yeah, yeah. And the reaction uh, to the sex? It's been I you know I probably ex- a lot of that was to be expected as well. I suppose we've. Um, probably all aware of things like the live line debates and stuff and kind of what, what's been going on on Twitter as well and 
like uh, around the country, I suppose, people have been talking about it. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, as you said, it's being released on, on RTE and BBC, and it's that regular slot on RTE where I'm sure a lot of people are watching mm. um, and not expecting to see a show like that, maybe something they haven't seen before, especially an Irish programme, like a natively Irish programme. Mm. So um, I, I think it's a really positive change. Like I think it's the, the depiction of it is very um, authentic, but also uh, a very good, yeah, awkward. Awkward, awkward, and all of those things that are true to that age, and and it's probably a little bit different, you know, a different lens than we're used to when kind of sex is depicted on screen. Yeah. So, like, we're learning for one for once in our lives that people don't just fling their clothes to the nearest wall and hop wildly into. It doesn't happen like that. No, and I think that's uh, like uh, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's it's a different, it's a cultural switch, really, in the way that that's been depicted on screen. So, um, and 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 maybe that makes it a little bit more awkward for people. I don't know, but like, yeah. yeah it's, it's, you can imagine I, those sitting on the couch with your mam, and 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 the toes are curling in the shoes. You know, <laughs> a lot of people staring at their phones, and suddenly you're going off to put the kettle on. Um, <laughs> this kettle, the kettle's boiled to death. Yeah, <laughs> the kettle's been on all night. Like, <laughs> come here. Uh, big, it's it's been a big year then for you, and uh, you've also done a science a science fiction movie. Yes, yeah, Vivarium. So that actually just came out a couple of weeks before Normal People. So similarly to to the show, I suppose it's, it, it's been released during this kind of lockdown situation. So the cinema release was cancelled and um, it went out on video on demand uh, at the end of March. Um, and yeah, again, a kind of an interesting one because it, it sort of felt very, it probably felt like a very surreal thing to be watching in these in this situation. Um, to tell you a little bit about it, it's a couple who end up locked in a housing estate and the house that they're kind of, the house that they've found in it. So it's like this nightmarish kind of surreal um, thriller. And uh, I filmed that, I'd say, I think it was, t- it was exactly two years ago, really. So um, totally on the other end of the scale to normal people. Mm, it's it's a, re- a vivarium is a place where you keep animals for research. Yes. <laughs> so the clue is in the title. You kind of know what you're getting into. Um, <laughs> Creepy crawlies? Uh, not quite. We're kind of looking at it's like it's it's like the humans are kind of on the observation table here, and are being kind of studied and um, monitored, oh and uh, it's it does really feel like a nightmare. It feels like one of those things where you wake God. up in the middle of the night and go, "What? Oh, like, what would I do in Touch, that situation?" Touch the human centipede stuff here. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's a banned movie, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, listen, great to talk to you. I, I, it's really, really great to see it turn. Uh, this this show is so, and it, 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 other people are Cork people on the show as well, of course. Yeah, there's um, Sarah Green. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, the legend is Sarah Green, who is just wonderful and incredible actor, but also uh, a great uh, role model. And it was it was an interesting one in this show because it's such a young cast. Um, and Sarah's a young actor herself, but she would have been one of the more, I suppose, experienced. Um, and so it was a really nice to like have a group of young actors get to work with people like her and with Lenny and Hetty and uh, and all the producers. It was like it was a nice kind of, you know, it was a nice connection with all that experience. And then these people who are 
hopefully just starting off in their careers, you know. It's great. Very, you mentioned Lenny Abrams sometimes because like, what has been said about it from the very, very start, from the moment the credits rolled, is that no matter what you think of the scenes or the storyline or, or whatever, it is beautifully written, it is beautifully filmed, magnificently put together, and very, very well acted, including your good self. Thank you very much, PJ. That, thanks a million. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's getting that reaction. Cause yes, it, it is indeed. Yeah, good, to good, good to talk to you, young man, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Lovely stuff. Great to talk to you. Cheers, cheers. That's Anna Hardwick from Military Hill up around the corner to us here in Corker Place. Rob Hegarty in Normal People. See, I do hang around with celebs. Proper ones. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the indoor self-service laundrette at Drew's Filling Station, Turner's Cross. Remaining open every day for all your laundry needs. Selfservicelaundry.ie This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. We're asked to give a big mention to a Passage West legend, and that's Jim O'Sullivan. Dave Kelly got on to us to say, please wish Jim a happy 100th birthday today. Lives with his daughter Mary. Look forward to seeing you all on Sunday in Glenbrook at your home. That's from all the neighbours. I presume that they'll be socially distanced. Of course they will. Of course they will. Happy birthday to Jim O'Sullivan. Passage West legend, 100 years old today. Shout out to everyone at Stryker in Spring Hill this morning, especially Donny Tracy, our security officer, who's keeping us all safe and well. Uh, people often forget this type of frontliner, and indeed they do, Brian. And indeed they do. At the very start of all of this, I, I spent some time trying to compile a list of frontliners. And I spent a lot of time trying to compile a list and flipping heck, didn't I leave some people off it and I haven't been forgiven for it since, but I was doing my best. 1850-715-996. Moving on to areas that will reopen or can reopen on Monday. Uh, there's a, the list is out there. Garden centres are among them, for example. That's coming up in just a sec. But you remember the email I got earlier in the morning? from Mary, who was talking about private health care and about how she makes sacrifices and her husband makes sacrifices so that they can afford their private health care. And she looks around her and she hears from people who say, oh, I can't afford private health care, to which her response is, yes, you could if you wanted to, you're just not making the sacrifices. Few responses to that. Hi, PJ, in relation to VHI, I've always had VHI or any other kind of health insurance. For myself, my husband and three children, I wouldn't be without it. I had breast cancer and the VHI covered everything over the years. My children have also had to go to hospital. The cost was all covered. Now they are adults. They all have their own insurance and wouldn't be without it. It's peace of mind. We all had to cut back when we were married with young children, but health insurance was always important. I mentioned the letter that I got uh, as a VHI customer um, what, it's a few weeks ago now and then I saw nothing happening in the next direct debit they said I was going to get something back and I never got anything back in the next direct debit PJ says Finn I got nothing back from my company either the direct debit is paid in arrears so in July we, it should be sorted good man thanks Finn and Tom says I'm a VHI customer I had my payments adjusted yesterday I have a lot of money going into VHI my complaint is the Department of Health 
without taking over the consultants who now have no hospital. There was some negotiator took the opinion that the consultants were milking the system. I have an operation booked and have no news on it at all, at all, at all. 1850 715 So on Monday, among the outlets that can open are garden centres. Uh, because people were asking since the very start, well, why are they closed? Why can't we go and buy a few plants and colour up the garden? Daniel Leahy is the Carew's Wood Garden Centre. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Daniel, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Good. Exciting times, busy weekend as you prepare to reopen. Yeah, we're, we're busy now uh, setting the place up just to kind of um, make sure that we're uh, adhering to all guidelines and that uh, everybody will be safe. Um, we're very lucky, I suppose, that we have a big open space and it's easy enough to do to put in a one-way system and stuff like that. So, yeah, we're looking forward to having people back in the centre. What kind of, of instructions have you had or have you had any? Oh, we have. We got um, a guideline from Board B, uh, specifically for our garden centres reopening. It's, it's, it's not a common. Just have a disinfection point, have all our baskets and trolleys disinfected, make sure that everyone's have markers so everyone's adhering to the two metre distance and social distancing. So, um, yeah, we've had guidelines. I think everyone knows now at this stage what they need to do, do you know? Are you a bit annoyed that you weren't given an opportunity to do that in the first place? Um, look, it was an unknown for everybody, I suppose. They just had to kind of set a, a, put down a, a rule and just kind of stick to it. We were allowed to deliver, so... Uh, at least we were able to trade to some extent, so it wasn't too bad. But yeah. look, it is what it is now, and we're opening on Monday and looking forward to it. What what are the what what do you think people will go for Monday morning? Color, summer, color, color, color. That's all they seem to be looking for. At the beginning, it was all vegetables and anything edible. And um, for the first few weeks, and now it, it's moving on into summer bedding and herbaceous perennials. They just want a, a splash of colour, I suppose, into their garden during these uh, weird times, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's good. A lot of people are getting back into the garden that haven't been gardening before. So it's a great opportunity right. for everyone to kind of get back to it, you know? Well, given that Costa del Gardenia is about as far as most of us will get for a holiday this summer... Exactly. You, exactly. you might as well make it look as good as you well, can look. This is it. Yeah, we might as well enjoy the space we have and just make the best of it. Do you think you'd be mobbed? Um, you hope you wouldn't, obviously, as in people not trying uh, to charge yeah, no, in the door. So, yeah, so, yeah, we're going to be very strict on uh, how many people we can leave in and we'll have someone in the car park and we'll just have to tell people to hold off if there is too many people. Um, I'd say it, it could be busy enough. Now, I'd say a lot of people will still kind of do it over the phone. We still have a lot of customers just ringing, inquiring, and we're sending out deliveries that way. Um, and we still have, uh, we've set up an online shop, so if anyone doesn't feel safe coming out, they can go on there. Um, so I, I think, yeah, we, we, it, it'll probably be busy enough because the weather's fine, but we, we'll manage it. Okay. All right. Well, good luck with everyone that's reopening on Monday. Yourself and all the other centres around the place. Daniel, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. 1850-715-996. Hello to all the youngsters in Farinree, North Prez. They were to make their communion this Saturday, especially Katie Cahalan in Parklands, and let her know her family thinks she's very brave, especially her two nanas, and that's from, from Pauline. Callers in Middleton. A field recently bought by Middleton Ga was rampant last night with nearly 20 people. He called the guards. He has no idea if they went to break it up, 
but he went for a walk in that field this morning. There are bags of rubbish everywhere. I'm just worried, and I've been talking to the Queen Bee about this, um, I, I'm just worried that there will be a bit of a free-for-all on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday if the weather is good and the weather is forecast to be reasonably good. I just hope there won't be a free-for-all and that people will realise that unless your workplace is a workplace that is open again and unless you have to go back to work on Monday or you're able to go back to work on Monday, you actually are kind of still supposed to stay home and you're kind of still supposed to only go out if you have to. Essential journeys only remains the, the, the situation. And essential obviously includes going to work. And the five kilometres stays in place on Monday. That doesn't change. I don't have the dates to hand now, but that doesn't change until June. Until at least June. Uh, the 8th of June, if not the 18th of June, it changes. So the five kilometres are still in place. 1850-715-996. I want to talk a little bit about mental health. Uh, a man who's raised €26,000 for Pieta House since his father died has appealed to farmers to be mindful of their mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic. Paddy McCarthy was from Ballinadee, County Cork, and he died by suicide on the 1st of May. And his son, Thomas is on the line. Thomas, my, my sincere condolences on, on your family's tragedy. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, very, it's very tough, to be honest. Uh, mm. It's not a nice thing to go through. No. Tell me a bit about your dad. Um, so dad was 59 years old. Um, he was born and raised in Balnady, um near Kinsale. Farming man, loved the farm, loved music, loved dancing. Um, he just really had a great, um, great energy, great spirit about him. He had a great sense of humour, and he was a lot of fun. So I think that's why, you know, when we when we found out what was after happening, we just didn't really believe it because the like the Paddy McCarthy we knew was just there was no way he'd do something like this. Mm. He farmed. He farmed, yeah. Yeah, and he loved farming. He loved it. Yeah, he loved it all. He he did it all his life. He loved it. And did was there ever any sign that that he wasn't himself inside? Um, well, not really, no. But like you know, Mam had said that he was feeling a little bit down recently. But like I think we all just are feeling a little bit down recently because of the lockdown and the quarantine. Yeah. So you know, everyone is on. You know, you just think, oh yeah, it's just the lockdown. But um, there was nothing really that was uh, a major major alarm bells. There was nothing. And that different about him that we we had noticed. So, yeah. Like, had he been able to work away, or was he trapped in the house? I mean, obviously, um, no, with the farm, you have to. There are things you have to keep doing. Yeah, no, he was he was out all the time. He was always out, so like you know, feeding the calves, and he was out in the yard. So he was always out in the house. But um, a massive part of Dad's routine as well was you know, he'd go down to Kinsale at the weekends, down to 
he's his favorite band is a uh, crazy Chester, the live band, or he'd go into music and 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 dancing. He'd meet friends, so that was a massive, you know, massive part of his routine. And now that he, you know, maybe that he couldn't do that anymore, that affected him a lot. Mm. You you were in in Vancouver, weren't you? Uh, yeah, I was in um, yeah, so Whistler, so it's an hour and a half north of Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. Talk to me what it's like about getting that phone call, Thomas. Um, so it was seven o'clock in the morning, um, and we're eight hours behind where we are. And I just was woken up by my roommate, and she'd come into me and said that my sister was trying to um, call me, and she, that I needed to call her back straight away. And then when I looked at my phone, I had two missed calls to my older sister, two missed calls to my younger sister. So I just knew straight away something was um, something was wrong. And then um, I rang rang home. And then my mother picked up the phone and she just said, your father's after taking his own life. And I didn't really believe it. And just this, you know, it's just shock. And and then within about half an hour of hanging up the phone, I had flights booked and I was packed and ready to go. I just wanted to be home. Yeah, of course you did. And it took you, what, 23 hours or something to get home? Yeah, 22, 23 hours, uh, uh, three flights. It's a lonely journey. Yeah, I could never, I'd never want anyone to ever go through that. You were close to your dad, were you? Uh, I wasn't as close to him as my sister was, but um, you know, in the last few years, I made a conscious effort to get to know him, work on the relationship, and I'm glad that I did now. You're at that age, well, I guess. You're 23, 24 now. You're at yeah. that age where we kind of start getting to know our dads better, or at least trying to. Yeah. So how did the Pieta House connection come up? Um, how did it come about? Um, so I think it was last week. I was just reading something on Facebook about how Pay the House. You know, they need they get eighty percent of their um, funds are from the public for the, for the year. I think, and without the darkness into light run this year, that's going to be a massive blow to their funding. And um, I just thought we have to do something about this. You know, something positive has to come from all this negativity in our own lives. So we set up to go fund me um, myself, my two sisters, and my brother. And we set the goal for 5,000. And we thought, Jesus, if we got 5,000 for a period house, it would be amazing. But it kept going and going and going. And now we're nearly on 30,000. I think it's on 28,300 or something. That's, that's fantastic. But, yeah, we just really want to give it that final push. Um, because like, people need paid house now more than ever with you know with the lockdown and people are you know isolated and, and they're, they're struggling to get funding as well because of the whole quarantine. So we really have to support them so they can support people. Yeah. Yeah, um, you talk in the. I'm reading in the Examiner. You, you talk about the funeral, and and I think I think any of us would dread the prospect of losing someone under the current circumstances in any way at all because of the limitations on funerals. That must have been very very hard. Yeah, it was. It just you know the whole thing didn't really feel real. I think there was only about ten of us allowed into the church, and you know. You can't see your friends or you can't even see extended family. And like my dad's sister Anne is in Australia and so she couldn't come home for it. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you just want to see people, hug people and grieve with people, but you can't. So it makes it that bit more tough as well, you know, on top of everything else. Yeah. Looking back and thinking about thinking about your dad and, and thinking about what might have been going through his mind and whatever it was, it was deeply important to him. The importance of sharing, the importance of talking t- to someone, you, you stress that. Yeah. 
definitely. Because, you know, I think there's this thing as well, with, especially with men, but, you know, you, you're, you're weak if you ask for help and you, you don't want to burden people with your problems. Or you, you, you think, oh, like, I don't, you know, they don't want to be hearing that. But, like, you're actually, it's the opposite. You're strong if you ask for help. You're acknowledging that there's a problem there and you're, like, working towards a solution. And you, you just need to ask for help. You need to, like, we need to look out for each other, especially with the farming. You know, farmers are such, they're, it's an isolated job. Yeah. So you could be down in the yard in the field all day alone with your thoughts. Yeah. Um, but like, and like, but even now in these times, I think we should just look at like farmers, especially look out for each other, you know, send a text, give a call, neighbours, because like you never know what people are going through, especially with dad. We had no, we had no idea that he would ever do something like this. Yeah. <laughs> There's a dedicated farm line or dedicated phone line, I think, for farmers now as well, isn't there? Yeah, I think that that's something set up for the house as well, isn't it? Minder farming families, I think, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. it was one eight ninety one three double o double two, specifically set up between between the IFA and, and Pieta House for for farming for farming families. Um, yes, it's it's it's. Are you going to be staying home here now for a while, or what are you going to do? Um, yeah, I will. Yeah. Um, so the four of us are here with Mum, and my sister is working loads on the farm, so we're all going to be giving her a hand for the you know the coming months, even next year and stuff. And it will be nice that we're all together, but it's it, it will be it will be tough. It's not going to be the same. It's not the circumstances under which you'd like to have been together. How is your mum? No, mum, mum's okay. Mum's mum's really strong. Um, and she has she has the four of us as well, like I said, and her family and friends and neighbours and everyone have been so good to her. Like we've we've really really good neighbours and really good friends, so we are lucky. Mm. Has um, she been has she, she like, been racking her brains as to as to what? Yeah, of course. On? This was the yeah the original you know thought is how did I not know or, or yeah. why couldn't I have done anything? But you know you never really know what people are thinking. And like my parents now are married thirty years in June. Um, and mum has known dad all her, all, all her, like you know, thir- all the thirty years. But you just just goes to show you that you people, you never know what is happening in someone's head. And you can think like, how how could I not stop this? But you just you just can't know because he never he, he just never spoke about it. He never said anything. So there's no way of knowing. And I wish I wish he did say something, or I wish he asked for help, and we could yeah. we could you know. Yeah. Some something that was said one time. Um, to me, uh, just for use in a situation of this, I'm talking to someone. Don't try to understand. You're not meant to. Yeah. Can't understand this. Who's looking after you guys at the moment now? Presumably each other, but but who who's minding you? Who's minding um, you? Who's minding you? So our, our aunt Eileen has been very good to us, dad, sister, and then my dad is actually a triplet. So um, our uncle Goss is here, and we have our other uncle, Uncle Donny. So we're surrounded by family, and then we've really, really amazing cousins like Sean and Colette, and everyone's been really good to us. So like we're lucky to to have to have such a, a great support network around us. Okay, okay. If people want to continue donating, where do they go? Yeah, so they can go to you can search GoFund on the GoFundMe page, um, and it'll be under I think my own name, Thomas McCarthy, or it's under. Um, Darkness and Slight Sunrise Appeal for Paddy McCarthy, or it's been shared, like, I think it's on Facebook, it's on, definitely on Facebook as well. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, I'm going to try and share it more and just, like, we're just trying to get 
you know, as much awareness okay. for, you know, farmers, men, people suffering right now with the whole lockdown and just enough funding for Peter House. Yeah. Pick up the phone, talk to someone. Yeah. Just mention to someone that you're not doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Listen, uh, my thoughts with you and, and the family. Uh, thank, thank you for you talking so to me today and congratulations on the success of the fundraising. Thank you so much. Take care. That's Thomas McCarthy. The number uh, that farmers can call is a dedicated line for farmers and their families set up as a collaboration between the IFA and Pieta House. It's one eight ninety one three zero zero two two. One eight ninety one three zero zero two two. We might just add that actually to our list of of daily numbers, which I haven't given you yet today. I'm a bit stuck for time, but I will give you the city council community call and the county council community call numbers, and they are city council is one eight hundred treble two double two six. That's one eight hundred treble two double two six, and the county council are 1-800-805-819. That's 1-800-805-819. And again, for farm families and farmers struggling with these difficult and strange times, as, as Thomas was saying, it's an isolated job anyway. So if you're struggling with any element of your life, anything, you feel you want to talk to someone, one 800 one eight ninety one three zero zero two two. PJ says, Geraldine, have you any idea when daycare centres are to reopen? I work in one. We've never heard a mention of them in any reports. I'd love to get back to work. Don't know, Geraldine, is the simple answer. We'll have a look at the schedule. We're going to go into the details of this a little bit more on Monday, the schedule of what is going to happen and when. 1850-715-996. Coming up, we're talking Eurovision. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With the solid fuel depot at Drew's Filling Station Turner's Cross. Remaining open for all your essential fuels with drive-in or seven-day delivery. Solidfueldepot.ie This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 0833969696. On Cork's 96FM. Derek Mooney, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Ash, I'm grand altogether. It's a bit sad we won't be hearing that tune played in anger this year. Well, it is, but there are more important things in the world right now, as your previous interviewee was just saying. And God, my heart went out to him, because when you live in a city like Dublin or in Cork City or in any city anywhere in the world, you don't think so much about their agricultural community unless you're from it. So it was very interesting to listen to him. Well done to you guys for doing that interview. It was very important. But yes, no, Eurovision, as we know us tomorrow night on RTE or on BBC or wherever you happen to watch it. But it's great that we have something in return. (laughs) Which is a book called (laughs) Hold Me Now. God, where did you find that title? Well, it's it's really strange, PJ. About two years ago, I was working on a nature program. Can you believe it? Called Nature Live, which was a pan-European project going live from Dublin the week before 
the Eurovision Song Contest. And this brainwave came into my mind about uh, a movie, a jukebox movie, because Mamma Mia had come out and had been really successful. I thought, why has there never been one about the Eurovision? They can't go anywhere with Mamma Mia. And then they come with Mamma Mia too. <laughs> but I thought, I've only got so many songs. But the Eurovision has over 1,500 songs in its back catalogue. It's been on for 60 years. Mm. And I came up with this idea for a jukebox movie, simple as that. And I had the two characters in my mind, the... Stevie Sherrard and Linda Martini. Wow. <laughs> Based on, you know, Linda Martin, because that's her originally family, original family name. And I had this idea of four guys coming from Liverpool on a stag in 1987. The night Johnny Logan was in the National Song Contest and won with Hold Me Now. And they meet these four girls who are dressed as Dana. And they call themselves the Danas. And they're on their way to the song contest, the National Song Contest in Ireland. And two of them strike up the friendship, Linda Martini and Stevie Sherrard. The girls have a spare ticket. They ask him if he wants to go. He goes along, leaves the stag party. It's a great night. At the end of the night, Johnny Logan is announced as the winner and he will represent Ireland in the Eurovision that year. And the whole place erupts. And everybody's hugging and kissing. And they turn to each other. And for the first time, they hold each other. Hence the title of the book, Hold Me Now. Had and you drink goes, taken at the time? <laughs> huh? Had you drink taken at the time? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's like any romantic novel. Anybody who reads novels, especially romance, knows they need a couple of key elements. And the first key element is a kind of loving couple who find each other, find love, but they have struggles. So it has to have drama in there. It has to have a bit of an emotional roller coaster, which this has. And then at the end, there must be a kind of a happy ending, a ha- an optimistic happy ending. They must have something, a future ahead of them. So I knew that's what it needed. So you have to have a couple, and then you need a supporting cast. So that's where the idea came from. I knew they were going to have a son, and the son was going to eventually be representing our, uh, the UK at the Eurovision Song Contest. And he's going to know where his parents met. So the story basically is narrated by the son called Sean Sherrard, mm. who just happens to be Johnny Logan's real name. Mm-hmm. Johnny Logan is his stage name, and Johnny's been in the news an awful lot this week, and he's a real yes. hero and star, uh, Johnny Logan. And I happened to be there that night at the National Song Contest in 1987. So it's based on a lot of experiences or situations I found myself in over the years. There's great comedy in it, great, a, a terrible drama, very great sadness in it, you know, but it's, it's very well constructed. Now, can I just say, PJ, and I must say this, I did not write this book. It's written by an award-winning uh, author called John McKenna. Yeah. And John is uh, an old colleague of mine from RT. He teaches, he lectures in creative writing at Newth University now. He took early retirement some years ago, and he's a brilliant writer. So I had the idea. I worked it up with a friend of mine called Niall Hatch, who works for Birdwatch Ireland. And I contacted John after hearing him doing an interview with Pat Kenny, of all things, about Leonard Cohen. And I said, why didn't I think of John? And I said to him, I'm going to say something to you, John. And you answer the first thing that comes into your head. And he said, okay. And I said, hold me now. And he said, Johnny Logan. And yeah. I said, can I meet you? <laughs> it's, it's an association that's made, in, that's made in the head automatically. It's set in a time, I think, Derek, when those of us who would be Eurovision fans, like I've been, I've been to it five times. Snap, me yeah. too, five in, times, yeah. In, in recent years, my love has waned a little because it's Why? gone a bit strange. I still love it, but it's just it's gone strange. And I worry, could we ever, could we ever win it again? But it, it's set in a time when we were that kiddies. 
Oh, absolutely. And it set the backdrop of the 1980s is where this starts, 1987. And let's face it, Ireland wasn't the best place in the world to live. There was an awful lot of emigration. It was very hard to find a job. All of my, I left school in 86. All of my friends, the majority of them, I'd say, from the class went to the UK. That's where everybody went. We see a lot of um, people coming in here from South America, Latin America, Brazilians and stuff coming in, living and they're living for in a room in a bedroom. That's the way Irish people did it in London back in the, 70, the 60s, the 70s and the 80s to find work. So it's set in that time line. And the two characters, Stevie, Stevie's a docker who works in the ships in Liverpool. Um, Linda Martini, Linda's father has a chipper. She's Irish-Italian, as so many uh, people who run fish and chip shops around Ireland are indeed. And she's a teacher, but she can't find work. And that, uh, that experience comes from John McKenna's own experience. John was a teacher and yeah. back in the 80s, he couldn't find work. It was very hard. Now we really appreciate teachers. Yeah. You know, we appreciate that they give not just our children and ourselves an education, but actually they're responsible for our children. Yes. And look at the crisis we're in now. We realise where the teachers, what they, you know, we, now we realise how, how, how important they are. Important Sir, and, they are. And I'm actually being quite serious about it. I don't have kids myself, but I, I see their, their role in society. And it's a social role, not just a kind of an educational and development role. It's a social role, and you can see that very clearly now. But so it's set against that backdrop. And what happens is basically Stevie and Linda get very close. And they meet each other a few times after the stag and all that kind of stuff. And she becomes pregnant and tells her father, Mr. Martini, and he isn't a bit happy. And pretty much gives her £500 himself to solve this problem. So she takes herself off to England, as so many young girls did back in the day, and went to uh, an abortion clinic. She went along with her friend Anne. And we tell that experience of what happens there. And again, that's another experience I had myself back in the 90s. I was a reporter freelancing and I was reporting for Pat Kenny from outside of abortion clinics where there were legal protests taking place. I must stress that. But uh, they were standing outside uh, protesting against the Irish girls going into the yeah. abortion clinics and showing them pictures of aborted fetuses and saying, look what you're about to do to your baby mammy and all this kind of stuff so it's set against that time but that's what i'm saying there's there's a lot of emotion in this book it, it it's not just for people who like the eurovision song yeah. contest it's, it's it's set sounds against like, that it sounds soundtrack. like a really well woven irish oh, story it, with, with it is uh, absolutely great, pj great, thank you for great. saying that because that is exactly this yeah. is pure irish and anybody who's irish will know this experience they may not have lived it but they'll be aware know. of it. Is there an audio book or will there be an audio book? Yeah, I'm going to be recording with John McKenna in the next few weeks. As soon as the coronavirus pandemic has allowed us more okay. freer movement, that's when we'll actually record the, okay. the book. And our plan is to have a stage musical and hopefully a movie, a oh, jukebox great. movie, we'll and made dainty in Erin. We look forward to it. We look <laughs> yeah, forward yeah, yeah. to it. Come here, who would win if it was a set two between Dickie Rock and Johnny Dove? <laughs> well... <laughs> Do you, do you ever watch the, the roast, the roast battle that's yes. on TV? I think Joe Duffy missed a trick. Joe, or yourself, it's never too late. Get Dickie and Johnny on to have a roast off and say <laughs> the most horrible things to each other. And then at the end, to make up and kiss each other on the cheeks like the showbiz people do and move on with their lives. And that's what they should do. But, that's, but to answer the question... Neither of them would win. <laughs> Come here, let's talk a little bit about the concert, the, the contest that isn't happening, because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking back at some of the songs that have been entered. Like, I, I think we could actually have had a very good chance this year with Leslie. Leslie Roy's song is absolutely amazing. I had, was fortunate enough to speak to her in a couple of weeks ago. She's back in Manhattan now. That's where she lives with her wife. Her wife is a psychotherapist, and I said, is she helping you through this? And she said she's been fantastic. But she is an amazing singer. That song is an earworm. I can hear you playing it in the yeah, background It's there. a stunning it pop song. fantastic song. And that's what we need. Na, 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 na. Like, that is modern Ireland. 
You know, that is modern Ireland. Like Linda and Johnny and Neve and Charlie and Paul, their songs were spectacularly brilliant. In fact, their songs would still live up to the test of the time. You know, they, they've got longevity in them. But this song is of right now, of yeah. this moment. And it could have been. I, I think, think it, it could have been. Yeah. And some of the broadcasters, I listened to Marty Whelan during the week in interviews, saying some of the broadcasters were really enthusiastic about it as well, which is unusual. But look, it's not to be, and it can't be entered next year because we've got to have a whole new song. There's a top ten out. A Spotify, oh, did a, Spotify did a top ten of the Eurovision songs of all time. Would you care to tell me where Johnny Logan came? I'd say Johnny's in the top two if he's not number one. He's not even in it? I don't believe you. And do you know what's I mean, not, do you know what's not number one? Johnny the Eurovision Song Contest, as you know, PJ, three times, yeah. not twice. He sang twice, but he wrote Whiny for Linda Martin. Johnny yeah. Logan should absolutely be in there. He's a fantastic singer and a, and a terrific yeah. um, turn of phrase, and he's able to get the lyrics and the emotion. No, he should have been in there for and sure. Do you, yeah. do you know what only made number four? Well, now I never liked that song. Yeah, but it's the Eurovision song. I have, the, I have the number one, and I'm going to play Abba, out on it. I never liked it. I never liked Abba. I do, never liked Waterloo. I do like Dancing Queen. Yeah. for lots of reasons, but I never liked Waterloo. Well, the number one song, according to Spotify listeners, I'm going to play out on it. Derek, good luck with the book. I look forward to reading it. It's available it. on Amazon. Can I say that? Yes, for, for Kindle can. and paper book. All right. Hold Derek, me now by John McKenna. Thank Derek, you, PJ. Derek, we take care. Thanks very Bye. much. <laughs> and that's it the overall winner of that survey by Spotify was this song which won back in 2012 it was a Swedish entry Laureen the number one Eurovision song of all time is voted by Spotify and Rihanna ripoff but that's why it worked that's it enjoy your weekend thanks Fergal thank you Katie stay safe stay at home see you Monday just after nine The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.